This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and before we get into it with the great Jimmy Duresta, let's just do a little biz. You gotta, you gotta finish your stuff with something, right? You got your hammers, your axes, your knives, your, your all your wood and your steel. It wouldn't it be nice to finish something, finish it with something nice and food safe? I'm using, I'm using axe wax, and I want you to use axe wax too. Axe wax is all natural and food safe, which is nice. I'm doing some steak knives, and it's nice that I can use uh, food safe by, uh, wax. It's not going to put anything icky on your on your knives when you give them to your customers. If you go to axewax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you'll get 10% off your order, which is great. So go get yourself some axe wax. Now, I'm trying to change the way you guys think about your website. You don't think about it like it's a it's a burden. Think about it like something that's going to help you do your marketing. It's going to answer questions. It's going to prevent you from having to deal with a million emails and your DMs. You want to get yourself a good website. It's going to save you time and energy, and it's going to be like another employee that doesn't take breaks, doesn't go to the bathroom and sit on the toilet watching Instagram. It doesn't take holidays. It's working for you all the time. So if you go to akinteractive.com slash full blast, fill up the paperwork, and Andreas Kalani, the golden Kalani, will get back to you and will figure out a great website for you. And let's just say you have a website. But it needs a little bit of zhuzhing up. You know what I'm saying? He's also a consultant, and he can help you scale your website up to make it better. And if you're going to do a trade show, like the Blade Show or something like that, and you need like a tabletop, uh, you know, table something or other, and you need to you need to have the your imaging and your all your your tabletop nice images. He can do that too. He's got 25 years experience as a graphic designer. And if you, as a listener to the Full Blast podcast, you go to akinteractive.com slash full blast, he's going to give you 10% off your order. So it's worth it. Think about it like you're supporting a maker who is a maker who knows how to fix it for you as a maker to make your life easier. Okay? AK Interactive, <clears throat> Axe Wax. Thanks, guys. This is very exciting for me. I'm very excited. My friend, I'm not going to tell you the, they call him the godfather of DIY and godfather of YouTube and godfather of this and that and the other thing. Jimmy DeRest is here and I'm very thrilled. Jimmy, how are you? I'm good, buddy. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm honored to be on with you. I've been listening to you since you first broke. Uh, I know you kind of peeled away from the knife guys and did your own thing. I do uh, both. Yeah, no, I know you do both. But I'm saying, like, you, you like peeled out of that to do your own thing, and and uh, I guess I heard you from the beginning. I guess I just saw your Instagram and started listening, and it, it's been great. So thank you. One of the things that's interesting, you don't normally meet, it, but believe it or not, it's hard to meet native New Yorkers. It there is. aren't, especially at our age, you yeah. don't end up meeting people who are native New Yorkers. Yeah. You grew up in New York. I grew up in Manhattan. I don't think, and at a certain age, a lot of podcasters don't realize the importance of Howard Stern in in this in this thing <laughs> in this whole thing. So when you, I one of the things I listen to both your podcasts, I've listened to Making It and Fits All podcasts, and I know that you have a huge, huge influence by Howard Stern. Of course, I mean, just he's just funny and silly, and you know, just very real and. You know, like he'll he'll burp. I mean, I don't do that, but you know, he'll burp on the air, and obviously he'll fart, and he's just 
it just it kind of got rid of that whole you know there's no there's no there's he got rid of the fourth wall basically you know? yeah you know and we've been listening i say we because my brother john got me into howard stern like since nbc i remember sitting around a radio because we knew he came on in the afternoon and we would dial the radio to howard stern this isn't like i i, I don't know 83 yeah. 82 that's right. that's right yeah i remember his first week his first week on the air my dad was a giant Imus fan. On WNBC. WNBC. Imus yeah. in the morning and then and then Howard in the afternoon. Yep. So my dad loved talk radio. And one of the reasons why I love talk radio so much is because I he would laugh and I thought, well, if this guy can make you know, if this guy can make my dad laugh, I wanted I want that too. And the we I remember being in the car, we were driving down Lexington Avenue for some reason, and my dad said, Let's turn on this new guy, Howard Cern. And I was uh, 83, so I was 10. And he, I rem- I'll never forget, I'll never forget, the first thing he said as soon as we turned the radio on is, I'm giving away tickets to Elvis Costello if the first person who's the l- first listener calls in to tell me what Elvis Presley named his penis. <laughs> I... <laughs> I was shocked at 10 years old that I was hearing penis on the radio. And my dad was like, what did he say? And we were just like, it was literally within three blocks of us turning it on. And he went right into that. And these people would call in and they would say, are you kidding? What's, I really want these tickets. What does the real answer? He was like, what did little Elvis, what did he, what Elvis, what did he call Elvis calls penis? And the answer was little Elvis. But it was like, <laughs> but it was like, it was one of those things, but New Yorkers especially, before the syndication, he meant a lot to a lot of New Yorkers, and I feel like I feel like podcasters have kind of gotten away from that whole thing. Well, it's funny. I love how he hates podcasters. He thinks I know. Like, he thinks we're all just like we have no ability, no quality. You know, obviously podcasts are great because they're like YouTube. It's raw. There's no producers most of the time. Nearly all the time, there's no producers. There's no you know very limited editing. It's very real. You know, a lot of people have gotten themselves in trouble on podcasts, and that's what's great about them. You know, it's not slick. It's not uh, you know as a. But then again, that's what we like how it's turned because of all those same things. Well, I you know it's it's funny because the radio biz and the podcasting biz and the making biz is very similar, and I realize that I understand why he doesn't like it because he was such a I mean there was there was no syndication before. Uh, before Howard Stern, there was syndi- he created the concept of syndication. So syndication is he went from Washington to New York, and then all of a sudden he made a deal when he moved to K Rock, in order to you don't have to do that. Click, we can have this. Hump. Don't worry about that, uh, oh. Jimmy. But when, but, nah, don't worry about it. It's fine. So he he created the concept of rebroadcasting his show everywhere. He did all the dirty work that a lot of podcasters are kind of like glean. You know, they're like yeah. they're getting the rewards it's a right. it's a whole different ballgame but as a new yorker a native new yorker we were listening to howard stern before he was syndicated and it yeah. was such a, a localized show yeah yeah no he was funny and i i told you just before we started you said save it save it i met howard twice wow. my brother john was a stand-up is a stand-up comedian and you know he had some heat for a minute there in hollywood and he got on the Howard Stern show two times, and both times because together we were such huge fans growing up, we went up there together. And uh, the second time we left with Howard, he actually we ended up in the elevator with him going down, and he had no bodyguard. This was all when he was still on regular radio. So this is K Rock. 
Yep, he was leaving K Rock, and I met Artie that day. And, uh, and as we were leaving, the all of a sudden it's me and my brother and Howard Stern in the elevator, and nobody else. Unbelievable. And, and my brother goes, Howard, no bodyguard. He goes, and it was we were dying laughing. He just goes, it doesn't matter anymore. He goes, he goes, I give up. It doesn't matter anymore. And was like you're not worried about anything. He goes. Who cares? He goes, nothing matters anymore. He goes, it doesn't matter. Like, you could tell he was just as exasperated as he is, like, you know, with management as he often was. He was just exasperated with life. <laughs> this was probably two years, three years before K-Rock uh, ended and he ended up going on. So that was probably 2004, maybe 2003. No, yeah. actually, it was in 2001. No, it was earlier than that. Was, he, he left in, like, 2002. 2002. No, no, 2001, I, I, remember, um, I remember specifically, it's really funny because... He went to K Rock. No, so I keep saying K Rock. I meant to say Sirius. He went to yeah. Sirius in December, uh, New Year's Eve, I think it was, 2006. Is it was first. Because you remember they were just playing like a heartbeat for like six months? Yeah. I, did, well, I didn't have Sirius. I didn't have Sirius. And it took me It took me a while to get Sirius. So I they were playing a heartbeat. Because yeah. like he was still trying to tie up his contract to get off of K Rock and then go to. And I remember it was like January 1st. I had just broken up with a girl. I was brokenhearted. Everything was sucked and I was sad, and that saved me. And really, like, listening to Howard every day and like the excitement of the new being on Sirius, it was it was just an amazing time in my life. I literally like that you hear people call in and say, you know, you saved me, you saved my life because you just made me laugh every day. I had that experience because I was just so downtrodden at this point and like nothing. I was just depressed. But listening to Howard every single day, and then you could just listen to it over and over. So if you right. like left the room and came back, you just listened to the replay because he just would start the new show. The that day show just would play over and over again. And uh, so those six months when he first started was like the beginning of 2006, and for me it was very therapeutic. And you know, obviously I'm just a fan for life. He's gone oh, yeah. through so many changes, and and so have I. You know, in ten years, and you know, as a public person. People call you and or people, you know, pick pick on you and say, "Oh, you're not the person you used to be." You know, it was much better when you did these things. It was much better when you lived in New York. You know, I get that stuff all the time. But uh, you know, me being what? such a huge fan of Howard, I, I roll with the changes. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter to me. He's just, you know, he's like he's in like I consider him like family. You know, it's like whatever yeah. happens happens. I listen to him. I don't listen to him. I don't ever resent him or hate him though. I wonder why that is. Why people say you you've changed? Like I know that. Be, one of the things about Howard Stern that's been amazing, and I've listened since the 80s, and then I love K-Rock. K when I was, he was at K-Rock is when I had my first studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And I felt like he was keeping me company. Also, when I was a yeah. kid, I, I fell into that that, that uh, small group of latchkey kids. Both my parents were divorced and they were working, and I was home alone, and the doorman would let me into the apartment. Yeah. And I was so alone, I needed to hear voices. So in the mornings, I'd either listen to Scott Shannon, the Z-Morning Z Z sure. Zoo, and I would try to hit the, you know pretend to hit the posts and then i'd listen to <laughs> howard stern and on imus because i felt like they were keeping me company five days a week sure and when i got to my first studio i was listening to howard Always. because because and i remember the time where the, i remember when that guy was jumping off was trying to when he talked the guy from jumping off the, the george washington bridge yeah. i remember all these different i remember the jackie days i remember the stuttering john days i remember yeah. you you there are these changes but he's still so innovative and i want wonder why like especially with you when you say people say you've changed i wonder what the idea behind your followers or your listeners or your watchers why they feel the need to make that point and then why can't they understand that you are a human being and you do change 
Well, well, you think you know, that it's, is. it's a certain level of comfortability, you know, yeah. and it's also, I mean, a lack of sound, at a risk of sounding like, you know, a snob. Certain people are, like, very provincial. They stay, like, they like the comfort of, like, things that don't change. And I, I can identify with that. I hate things that change, especially when I don't choose them to change, you know, like when somebody passes away, like recently in my life. You know, you there are people that don't want change and then with the comment section everyone feels they have the right to voice their opinion like I don't right. want you to change I'm like uh, okay I, I appreciate that but I'm, you can't stop the running water it's going to happen you can't stop the tide I'm going to change you know I, I outgrew my space in the city and when I left the city everyone's like don't you miss the city I'm like no I don't lift, miss you know risking burning down a tenement house with 40 apartments above me every day welding and blacksmithing in the basement of a city building I don't miss that I don't miss the building belching up all of its sewage into my space. I don't miss that on a rainy day like today. I'd go in and know it would be 10 inches of water in my shop. I don't miss that. I don't miss Speaking sliding of- a sheet of plywood you know, at 5 in the morning before people go to work through the hallway to get it down the steps to cut it up. Speaking of blowing up, I was actually thinking about, you know, I was wondering if you remembered when on, I guess it was on, what is it? I guess it was down the street from St. Mark's Place where there was a gas leak and there there was a building explosion. It was, there was a, there was on, off St. Mark's Place and 2nd Avenue, there was a, a, a French fry place called Palm Frites and the whole building exploded. Oh, yeah, yeah, that happened. I was actually in, uh, I was in Upper New York day that happened because I started getting messages about that was in 2016. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. I started getting messages. I'm still. I'm. Not, I'm out of the city now, completely. But I was in the city then, half and half, half up here, half down there. And we. I was going to look for a builder to build the building in my backyard. I was going to go look at a guy. My girlfriend set me up with a guy, and I was going to go look at a site he was doing in uh, Chappaqua. And I was on the site when I started getting messages from fans and friends. Saying, are you okay? There was an explosion on Second Avenue and, and St. Mark Street. And I was like, no, I'm, so I'm not there. I'm totally fine. And then I realized those two buildings that had Toy Tokyo in it. And that's um, right. And yeah, that was. I, I've been in that building a hundred times. I mean, Toy Tokyo was like one of my second homes when I was in the toy business. I was constantly going in there for inspiration, looking for uh, inspiration for manufacturing techniques, and you know, just checking out what was cool and new. Some of That's, my toys ended up in there. I remember going in there and seeing some of the things I made in Toy Tokyo, and I felt like I had arrived, you know, like in the hip set. Like, here I am. Like, I designed and developed this, and now it's for sale in Toy Tokyo. And then I tell the guy behind the counter, and he's like, yeah, sure, bullshit, whatever. Okay, cool. Uh, that's going to be <laughs> I can buy that- my own toy. That's the reason why I was thinking about it because I was actually thinking it was Little Ricky's. So these are they're, they're these little stores in New York that have like tchotchkes. You have them like it's almost like Newbury Comics in, in in Boston. They'll have like you know little things and little tchotchke things and stuff like that and like lots of toys. And I yeah. was thinking about that because I was kind of thinking about your history with toy manufacturing. And all of a sudden I thought I was trying to make the connection. I was like, I wonder if he had any relationship, had, had anything involved because I know you were not too far from there. Yeah, and yeah. I thought. What about Little Ricky's was down the street from Toy Tokyo. But, well, Toy Tokyo was over the antique shop that was downstairs. I, think, right. I wish I could remember the name. It was second time around or something. But I was I would always go into the antique shop. I just remembered. It was kind of slipped my mind. Looking for vintage toys. And then you go upstairs and find, you know, cutting edge cool, like vinyl toys and hipster stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was a great spot. And, uh, you know, unfortunately... The, these guys, some guy did some hokey ass repair on like a propane t- uh, or on a gas line, and that's what yeah. made the place blow up. 
that's happened a, a lot lately. Not too late. There was another. There was another thing like that where there was a, a gas leak. But it just. It. I always think about New Yorkers know where they were at certain places sure. at certain times. Like I remember. Like I don't know. I mean, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9/11. Were you? Sure. Were you in New York during 9/11? I was in my apartment on Second Street and Avenue B, and my sister had spent the night on my couch, and me and my ex Heather were together there. And uh, I got, and I woke up, and Howard Stern was on my radio. Uh, the, the radio would turn on every morning. Yeah. Howard Stern at six a.m. And uh, he was interviewing Pamela Anderson, and Artie Lang was there. And I got out of bed, went in the shower. My girlfriend and I worked together at the same toy company. We had to go to work that morning. And I was in the shower. And my sister banged on the door and opened the door while I was in. I was in the shower. I was in the, behind the curtain. She opened the door and said, "An airplane just flew into the World Trade Center." Howard Stern just said it. And so I got out of the shower. And I had a towel around me, and me and my sister, and I had a TV. I never watched TV. I still, I don't own any TVs now, but at the time, we flipped the TV on for like the first time in a month, and uh, they put on the news, and while me and my sister and Heather were watching the TV, I was in a towel. The second plane hit the other tower, and we could hear the boom out the window of my apartment. And, oh, I'm getting emotional. I understand. Dude, listen, I, that wasn't my intention because, yeah. I, I mean, some people think I intentionally try to get people to cry on this fucking thing. But 9-11, but it's not true. Ladies and gentlemen, that was not my intention. I wasn't trying to get Jimmy to cry. But but, but for New Yorkers, it's a, it's, it's, it's like it's, I'm getting goosebumps now. Yeah. Anytime I, you know, it's we were. It's fucked up. It's fucked we up. Were, Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that I've told the story before that I was taking my wife to, she was uh, at nursing school at, uh, and she, I was taking her to a shift at, uh, at uh, Mount Sinai and we got on to, we were living in Brooklyn and I, I was working in a restaurant and I decided to drive her in because we never saw each other. And then I, we were on, we got onto the BQE going North when this, and we saw the second plane hit. Wow. So it's like our story, it, it the, I talked to knife makers, 27-year-old knife makers, with beards on their face. Look like men. These look like men. And when I talk about like 9/11, they're like, "I was a baby. I was. Yeah, a ba- I don't know anything about it." I'm looking at these bearded men. I'm just like, "How is this possible? How is this possible that you you were a baby during 9/11? Yeah. And, and this, now that it's 20 years from now, I don't think that there are a lot of people who." You know, you see these stickers on the never forget and stuff like that, yeah. and it's from people who are never there. But there, yeah. there's so much, there's so much feeling oh, from people who were in the city that day. It's funny. I don't think that it's got me, but then I'll talk about it like now and yeah. it gets me. Yeah. <coughs> there was um, so the the second plane hit, and I immediately tears just came out of my face. Yeah. Like I didn't even feel the emotion before my body. Re- yeah. Like I didn't. My brain didn't feel it before my body reacted to it, and. It was almost like when you see a sound and then you hear a sound. You know, you hear a boom and then you feel it. And so tears immediately came out of my eyes when that happened. And then I realized the emotion that was coming over me. And Heather looked at me and she started hysterically crying because she said, she always said to me, like, she would always look to me like if I would panic about something, then she would worry. Because I never panicked about anything or never got upset about anything. She's like, you are always in control. She goes, so when you get upset or you're out of control, she's like, I know shit's bad. And so when she saw me cry immediately, she started crying. And my sister was like, oh, my God, what the hell's going on? And then we got all clothes together. I got dressed. We got up. We got up. I got up and out. My sister was running a little shop in the store of my building, the store in the the ground floor of my building. So she went down there to work. That's what she lived on Long Island, but she was occasionally staying in my apartment. And then me and Heather got it together to leave, and we walked across Houston Street 
toward Avenue A, and uh, I guess that's Essex Street on the other side. Um, we walked to the corner of Avenue A, and just as we walked into the view, like over Katz's Deli, yeah, like you could hear everybody like gasp. Everybody yeah. went, <gasps> yeah, like like the whole city. You could hear the whole city gasp. And as we rounded the corner, it was just a column of smoke. The building had just fall had just fallen. It was I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like I felt like I was like inside of a movie, like you know, like when you're dreaming and you're like you're in a movie and then you're like, Oh wait, I didn't actually really kill that guy. Oh I didn't really actually yeah. rob this bank. I could wake up and be out of it. But like you're in it and it was just like, What the fuck is going on? I remember there was a guy standing on top of a phone booth with his hands on his head like what am I witnessing? He stood yeah. on the phone booth, you know, a phone kiosk, so he yeah. could see what was going on. And, it uh, was. Crazy. I'll say. I'll say one thing. I've told my story. Our story was more like the Odyssey, where we ended up having to take my. Well, I, the funny thing is, is you want. I, I like to think about like in life, you have these good traumas and bad traumas, and they affect you the way you the way yeah. you are in life and when I left we left I was working in a restaurant I was working nights so I took my wife and she was my girlfriend at the, uh, she was my wife yeah, we'd just been recently married and I was in cut off shorts and cut off sweatpants shorts I didn't bring my wallet I had a clogs on kitchen clogs and a t-shirt with nothing else and I'll never forget we drove we were on the BQE I said we gotta get off the BQE we, we watched the planes hit then we said I said my studio's in Brooklyn of in Greenpoint let's park the car in Greenpoint and walk home and I remember feeling I remember feeling I am completely unprepared for anything right now and right. from that day forward I never I never wear I never walk out of the house in pajamas I'm like right. and I get out of bed and I am I have everything I'm gonna Knee, I, I would wear like welding clothes as soon as I wake up as stuff I know that I'm welding I'm always prepared for everything yeah. and I'll never forget the craziest part was at this time it was we, my wife had a cell phone and we were parking the car and we're getting out and my, my wife's mother called her and she was saying the Pentagon was under attack. And then yeah. the strange woman came up to Hillary, my wife, and said, what are they saying? This was before smartphones. Right. What are they saying? And it was so intense because we, and it was, we were in Greenpoint. Everyone was running towards um, the East River. Everyone right. was in my studio was on uh, 99 Commercial Street, which we had. the We were on Newton's Creek and we actually watched the towers fall from Newton's Creek. Yeah. And that's when the odyssey started of getting home. And yeah. getting home, and it, 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 I think it's hard to explain to people who weren't there actually what it's like. But it's, it's. You, I'm not surprised that you're this emotional because the older I get and the farther I'm away from the it, it I think about 9/11 more and more. Yeah. Every year I think about it more and more. It's crazy. So we saw that first building fall, and like we just couldn't believe what was happening. And we walked. We had to go. We were supposed to go to work that day. We had like a big sales pitchy thing going on at this toy company we were at. We had just spent, you know, the previous summer developing a whole bunch of toys. And today was the day we were going to, you know, meet all these retailers. And uh, I, I worked for the company. I wasn't like I was going to be at the meeting to assist the sales pitch. It wasn't my personal sales pitch, but you know, I was a creative that needed to be on deck in case questions came up about manufacturing and stuff. So we, we knew the day was going to be shot. So we started walking to work on Fifth Avenue and 21st Street. So Heather and I walked. We kept walking across, knowing the one building that first got hit was still on fire. And we got to the corner of Mercer and uh, 4th Street. Right? Huh. Remember Dojo's was there? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, The yeah, bottom yeah. line? And, yeah, sure, uh, was, sure. Uh, so we were standing on that corner watching the building. And then again, while we were watching it, just a huge gasp. 
And then we just watched it just mushroom and crumble down while we stood there. I mean, probably a mile from it. I don't know. How far away is that? It's like yeah, a mile. It's about miles. a mile. Yeah, yeah, a mile. And uh, we just couldn't believe it. And then we walked up through the park, up through Washington Square Park. And as we walked through the park, like traffic on the end of Fifth Avenue was just like stitched, stitched still. There was a police car with his doors wide open. And I had a camera rolling. And I have this footage somewhere. And uh, the, the the police car was blasting 10-10 winds. And there was a semicircle of people around listening to 10-10 winds out of the police car. Wow. And he, the, the very distinctive 10-10 uh, winds news reporter, whose name I don't know, but he said, he goes, I don't know what's happening. He goes, so many things going on. We don't really know what's happening. Things are unfolding very fast. I mean, like he said something very distinctive, and uh, it's escaped me right now, but I, I, I had it on video, so I heard it a hundred times, but he basically said, so many things going on right now, and so many things we just we just can't keep up with what's unfolding. Talking yeah. about the Pentagon and then what happened in Pennsylvania, and then you know at that same time jets were flying over the city. Like we could hear the jets flying. It was just and that and then we walked up to the building where we worked up Fifth Avenue, Twenty First Street, and we stood. The whole office, everything was canceled. We just stood on the roof of the building with all the other tenants, just watching this the World Trade Center fire. You know that burned for the next two weeks. Did you ever at all think about leaving New York? No. No, in fact, that we, my brother and uh, the owner of that toy company, this guy Scott, me, Joey, and Scott, Scott was very wealthy. He went, rented a truck, bought $10,000 worth of stuff at Home Depot in Jersey. We went, actually went with him. We drove back. This was on the 12th. And we drove back to right down to Ground Zero and started handing stuff out. Wow. And there wasn't even a bucket brigade like formed yet. Like that's how early we were there, like probably 20 hours after the buildings fell down. We spent the whole night walking around and trying to assist. And I had this little thing. I said to myself, there really wasn't any organization at that time. And, and you probably know you couldn't get down there after like 10 hours after we were there. It was it. It was shut off. If you weren't a first responder or had some personal, you know, uh, attachment to what just happened, you weren't allowed down there. Like we were down there without any incident. And everybody just said, thanks for helping. We given out masks and whatever else we needed to give out. We basically emptied out this truck. That's we drove down to Church Street at the end of Church Street, parked the car and walked 10 feet to that. Very distinctive image of the the side of the building sticking up with light behind it. You know, the, yeah. the you know right at the end of Church Street. And um, I said to myself, I'm going to look around and see if I can find anything. Like I didn't pick up a, like a memo or anything that was floating all. But I was looking around to try and find like the wheel of an office chair, keyboard right. key, uh, a mouse, a telephone handset, anything. Everything was just pulverized. Yeah. I couldn't. I like specifically said, let me see. Okay. Let me find one little piece of office memento. Everything was just gray dust. There was nothing discernible in the street except for just gray dust and paper. And like in hindsight, I wish I would have grabbed like, you know, just a piece of that office memo with, you know, a recent date on it or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it is it is it's undescribable, especially you know, when you live in New York, I also remember. I remember. I was. I was listening to the radio. I also remember when. I don't know if you remember this, but when Corey Lytle, it was not too far after Corey Lytle was a pitcher for the Yankees, and it was not too far after 9/11, and he was fly, He had just lost a. He just lost a uh, at the at Yankee Stadium, and he was. This was. I think the years after, and he flew his plane into a building accidentally up on Hudson on uh, off the FDR. Yes, I don't know that if you happened. Remember that. 
that? The 9/11. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember and that. In terms of radio, what was amazing was I I would listen to everything, including uh, Mike and the Mad Dog. I, I loved yeah. <laughs> Mike and the Mad Dog were so great because their voices were so, Mad Dog. Mike, Mad Dog, Chris Mad Dog Russo, is one of the unsung great broadcasters of Sour all time. Shoes. Sour shoes, right? Sour shoes, <laughs> the be, the greatest. We're gonna get back into that, but he was. I remember the day before. Uh, they lost, and 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 Matt, Mike and the Mad Dog were destroying Corey Lytle. And then I remember they just beating the shit out of him. And then he flies his plane into into this apartment over the FDR, and he obviously oh. dies. And and it was this crazy experience. I feel like all these weird things that happened to New Yorkers in New York, they remember kind of where they were. Sure. You know? Yeah, I remember that. I remember hearing about that. I mean, I uh. I am like I am like the least interested in anything in my entire life is sports right. <laughs> I absolutely no. do not have any interest in sports so I like aside from like Henry Aaron and Babe Ruth like these names I don't know any of these names I, after 9-11 my, we were living in Borm Hill and you know I, I, I say this probably too much is we're I'm getting checked for can- cancer I'm doing can- as much cancer screening as possible now just because I'm just like we breathe that, that downwinded air for yeah. you know 20 years like, ago and it's just yeah, one of those things I was there for that, about 10 hours that night and... I mean it's like it, you know you get nervous about the stuff like that obviously yeah. I felt like it took the the one time I felt like because at the time we, the bridges were closed the bridges were closed for over a week we yeah. couldn't get across into Manhattan from Brooklyn and I definitely remember thinking to myself when it are we going to get be- are things going to get better are things going are we going to ever is New York ever going to get back together and I just remember that first Yankee game back in October mm-hmm. and I, you didn't have to be a, a Yankee fan but everyone was there and I Derek Jeter yeah. it was it was this incredible Did the moment. mayor throw out the ball no the this is the greatest story so George W Bush was was going to throw out the first pitch right. and he was practicing he was practicing, and Derek Jeter, the, probably the greatest New Yorker of all time, goes up to him while he's practicing and says, "Don't throw it onto the, you know, don't bounce it off the plate. They'll boo you." Right. And I guess George Bush was like, "That was one of the scariest things anyone ever said to me," because he's <laughs> like, "If I bought, if it, they would have booed him off the ground, they would have booed yeah. him off the, the mound if, if sure. he had, if he didn't throw it over the plate." Did he do a baba booey? No, that's the yeah, that. See, this is this is the other thing about the, the Howard Stern show. The how there there are moments in in as a New Yorker that are some of the greatest that come from Howard Stern. Howard Stern's producer Gary Delabate threw out the first pitch at the Mets Stadium and just like threw it at the. I think he hit the umpire or something like that. It was, and they play. And it's one of the greatest. It was one of the greatest stories of all time. The best thing is because he had a he had a pitching coach for like four months right, before he did that. Right, right, right. It's I, I tell you one of the. The things that I'm always surprised about is not surprised. I guess it's one of the decisions they made. You know, Opie and Anthony and Howard Stern. They never played the 9/11 replay. You, yeah. Howard Stern will never play that day. You, really? And I've I didn't always, know that. I didn't realize that. I mean, I mean, I listen. I've been listening faithfully forever, and I would have assumed at some point they would replay that day, well, and they just never have. have. It's 20, it's I don't think so. Vacation. I don't know. I don't think. I mean, it. I would. I, I remember listening to the radio when when we were driving up uh, Atlantic Avenue to get onto the BQE, and I remember them saying that a small plane had hit the. They did all I knew was a small plane had hit the building. Right. There wasn't really any more information about that, but I do remember that Howard Stern was the first person I ever heard of who said the word Al Qaeda. Like he was very oh, very, wow. very very well aware of Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda. He was one of the first people I ever heard say that name. And it yeah. was very interesting. Wow. 
Well, I know I I, I don't have any conspiracy theory beliefs. No, I mean it's, you know it's just all one big you know fucked up that incident. But I was curious. Like I think it's George Collins said, why don't they keep the guy when they take his picture? Like two days later, they had the cover of the paper had fifteen different guys. Like these are the guys that did this. Yeah. And I just heard George Collins' voice in my head say, "Well, why didn't they keep him when they had them for the picture?" <laughs> I, it's I, I I like to think about like these New York things because, like I said, it's, it's it is hard to meet. You know, a lot of people who live in New York now are not native New Yorkers. It's, it's kind of hard to find that. I was wondering in regards to your the the, the toy manufacturing when you yeah. were involved in the toy manufacturing. What was what was that like? How did when how did you start? I know you went to SVA and you School were of Arts, yeah. School of Visual Arts, and you got into design. How did you think to get into toy well, design? You know, I tell people all the time, like right now, my nephew's uh, he doesn't want to go to college. He actually went, but like for the summer, the big family thing was like my brother's son doesn't want to go to college. And so I, I sent him a message. I said, look, college isn't necessarily about what you learn. It's really more about who you meet. You know, you're going to go be going to school with the next movie producer, the next big writer, the next big, uh, you know, sports figure. You're going to be going to school with these people. You develop friendships, and these friendships turn into your, your career associates. And you're going to meet that one person that's going to change your life. And that's the one thing that I stuck it out in School of Visual Arts for, because there was a moment in time where I'm like, what am I doing here? It's like, you know, I'm not really getting a fulfilling experience. But then something happened. I met somebody who changed my life. His name was Kevin. Kevin introduced me to 3D illustration and making things with my hands that are like 3D. Like the first year I was a graphic design student. Well, second year, first year is foundation where you get to do everything. You get to paint, sculpt, play with all types of materials. Uh, and then you, you take some communications, some uh, you know courses about history, and then second year you go into graphic design. And then at the time I was at the School of Visual Arts, all graphic design was like sitting out of stat machine or sitting at a, a photocopy or photocopying out text that you wanted to literally cut out with an exacto, lay them in single line, then photocopy it again, and then take that. So you were sketching up these mechanicals, physically sketching them up. And I would just make three-dimensional things. Like when we had to make a rubber stamp, everybody came to class with, uh, you know, bits and pieces of paper photocopied at various fonts, photocopied out of a book. And then the teacher was going to take all the rubber stamp graphics and then get them made into rubber stamps for the students, right? It was a great class. I came in with a woodcut. And everyone's like, where did you get a piece of wood? How did you cut it? But that was just how I grew up. I grew yeah. up like in a wood shop. So I was always taking the three-dimensional uh, approach to flat graphic design. And then I met a teacher who's like, you got to meet Kevin. Kevin introduced me to the world of 3D. And I thought I was going to be a 3D artist, making props or whatever. And then the final last semester of school, I had one more opportunity to take another class. It was still inside the curriculum and still inside my fate. So I took this class called Toys and Games with a guy named Mark Ducati. And Mark and I hit it off. He's a very funny guy, very sarcastic New Yorker, lived on 17th Street and 2nd Avenue, super cynical, very funny, like dark sense of humor. And he and I became friends. And uh, he said, because you, you, you have the ability to keep thinking and inventing weird shit, he said, you should continue to do it. And he says, if you want, I will, I will keep giving you work, helping me design my toys. He was at a point in his life where... He would come up with ideas, but he would like basically seed a couple people to play with his ideas, and then he, you put what you can into it and give it back to me. And he was paying me whatever twenty twenty five dollars an hour to help develop his ideas. And it was really I would meet with him like once a month. I'd bring stuff into the city and show him I had moved to the city yet. And uh, he got me on the path, and he started introducing me to people. Then when I introduced him to my brother Joey, him and Joey hit it off. They had my brother's got a darker sense of humor than him. The crazy shit we would laugh and talk about. And uh, 
we all became a very tight knit community in the toy business. And Mark just introduced me to everybody. And that's and then my brother took the reins and started really digging and developing relationships. Mark got us into our first uh, uh, toy fair over there on Fifth Avenue and Twenty Third uh, Street, and we just started networking and meeting people. And like literally, the spark was meeting Mark, and that's how it all started. So, what kind of toys were you were the first toys you were designing? We the very first thing I did I did while I was a student in Mark's class. This stupid game is. Very similar in, in a play pattern to like Hungry Hungry Hippos, yeah. where like you just kind of grab as many things. Like there's various types of games. Like that's a game for like young young kids. It's just right. like a lot of action, a lot of plasticky sound slap and stuff. I made a thing where you got to like take these marbles out of a beehive, and then the amount of mar- like you spin a thing, and if you take two, you take two out. If you take one, you take one out. But each one was a designated weight, and eventually the bee would come out, and the bee would shoot out and like but be on a stick. But the sound was crazy buzz, and like if you woke the bee up, you, you know you shit your pants. And, uh, <laughs> so we ran. That was the first product we tried to sell. We got into Tyco and Hasbro, we, but we never did sell it. But it developed relationships, and we developed a lot of relationships. And then I really kind of got into making novelty things, small little gadgets. And the one thing that that a lot of people know I did was this thing called gurgling guts. It's like a squishy eyeball. Yeah, I came up with that in uh, '94, '93 on 2nd Street and Avenue B in my little workshop that eventually became my sister's jewelry store. That's why she was around on 9-11. And, uh, yeah, so I was in that building on 2nd Street and Avenue B from 92 to we finally gave it up in 2006 is when I got out of that apartment. So I was in that little corner for a long time. So when you're designing toys, are you pitching them to Hasbro? How does it work? Do you... Yeah. Well, I actually, it's funny because me and my brother, we, we developed more like broy funny relationships kind of like a lot of the relationships that you and I have in the maker business yeah. uh, you know in this community like the way you know like more like real friendly friendships we develop that with more of the smaller toy companies so having like a real friendly friendship where we don't have to have a formal meeting like right. Hasbro and Mattel these guys are a little bit more stuffy I tended to not really get involved with them and if I did show a toy to them I showed it to them through an agent so I never really had meetings with Hasbro or, or Mattel but the smaller companies where I could literally pick up a phone and call uh, the guy at, uh, you know, four kids and say, hey, I got this crazy idea. Oh, cool. Well, I'm going to be in the city tomorrow. Let's meet for lunch and you can show it to me. So I developed more relationships with, with guys like that. And my brother really uh, was the guy who would make those connections. And um, so we ended up selling gurgling guts to a company called Four Kids. And uh, these just two brothers. We still, we're still in touch. And they actually, about a year, two years ago, they did a, a GoFundMe or, or a what is the other one? Not GoFundMe, but Kickstarter to try and revive the concept of gurgling guts because we did it with them, and then you know they kind of half owned the patent with them. We half owned the patent with them. the patent's expired, but you know all the branding and the trademarks and stuff. It's all still property that we all share. It doesn't mean anything, and none of it's earning any money. But you know, at the time we made you know a couple million dollars, but you know split four ways. It didn't last long. <laughs> but it just I just had a curiosity. So you come up with gurgling guts and then you come up with the drawing or do you have to make like a prototype or well i i i am a tinkerer i still i was and i still am i would just sit and tinker so i started playing around and uh the the way i came up with gurgling guts is my this guy perry who i was sharing a shop with had just done a movie uh, as he was the prop master on on a small independent movie and he made a bunch of these rubber brains and so these rubber brains were sitting around the studio we shared on second street and avenue b which was that storefront and I picked up one of them and I was playing around with it and I put it inside of a condom and I put fake blood in it. And I was like, oh, that looks cool. That, oh, that looks really cool. And so 
we ended up just showing that around. And then when we got interest in it from the four kids guys, then when we had to manufacture it, I couldn't figure out how to manufacture it. Everyone's like, how do you get the blood between the silicone skin on the outside and the hard rubber ball on the inside? And then I was like, well, how are we going to really make it? I've told this story a hundred times. I'm sorry if anybody's heard it. But the idea of the PVC ball is going to be a rotocast kind of dog toy inside in the shape of a brain or an eyeball or a stomach. And uh, if we put the liquid inside that ball inside a small hole, like with an injector, and then put that inside the clear skin and then glue it shut, let it dry overnight, and then squeeze the, the liquid out, suddenly when I did my first test of that manufacturing process, that's when we had the sound effect, which wasn't part of the original toy, but now it is the toy. So the, the sound of like the, the blood sucking and spinning on the inner ball became became the, the product. You know, like so we already were going down the road of manufacturing to sell this thing and we were just calling it guts. And then when it made that noise and we go, Oh, it's gurgling guts, that's a much better name. Much better name. Yeah, when and, you, and, you know, audio visual and tactability, you know, you have everything you need. So, but in, and the name also tells you what's going to happen, right? So it's like it's a, it's a, it's all encompassing. So how do you go about doing manufacture the manufacturing for well, something? Like luckily, that? in that case, these guys took over the the. Up, but I was always so hands on in the toy business. I, like when I would be in Hong Kong, I didn't actually visit the factory that made it, but I did meet with their factory agent because Hong Kong itself is like uh, is like the tip of Manhattan. But imagine all the factories are in like Upper Albany capital region. You know, so like if you meet. You know, I'm just trying to create like a relationship. So if you meet people in Hong Kong, all the factories are like 100, 200 miles away. Hmm. So you just meet all the factory managers that get in their car, take the sweaty drive all the way down to the tip of the city, and you deal with them there. And every once in a while, you want to be the client that gets to see the factory. You go, you drive up there, you take the train for the day, or you take a you know a six-hour cab ride, and you go up and you see, you go and actually see the factories in the country. And you have to also pass through the border, which is another pain in the ass. You know, I haven't been to Hong Kong since 2009, but if you were in Hong Kong proper and then you had to go to a factory visit, you needed to get a visa, you needed to go through the border, go into China. And I did that several times. But most often I would meet people in the city and then they'd bring the samples and then we'd sit and discuss opportunities, how to change the material, or like I did this test on this silicone, this doesn't rip, this rips. You know, it's funny, we made a whole bunch of these balls out of, with like a PVC skin, we didn't know is that the PVC skin has like the ability to let like liquid evaporate through it. So we shipped a whole bunch of these toys. When I say we, I was just the inventor, but because right. I knew much more about the process of manufacturing, I was integrally involved in developing it with the guys that put up the money to manufacture it. So I was involved pretty hands-on. Most of the time, if you sell an idea to somebody, you just say, thank you, uh, it's ours now, have a wonderful life. And you know, if it sells, we'll give you a royalty check. And they take it over. That's the working with the big guys. So that's why we like the little guys. Because then also sometimes we would charge them to develop it. So they, we would make the idea, agree to a royalty scale. And then we have the ability to do the graphic design, do the box, make all the prototypes, make all the sales samples. So we would sell the idea, but then also get the, the day-to-day dollars for helping the company manufacture and produce the product and you know, get all the pre-sales and stuff. And so this have, has all been my training, all like in all in the early two thousands and you know late nineties. Do you think you have an idea that you wish went off the ground? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it's so funny. I, I yeah, there's a lot. So I came up with this idea. I I had this styrofoam ball. This is in like ninety one. I had a styrofoam ball, and I scooped out both sides of the styrofoam ball. It was about an eight inch styrofoam ball. Like, do you remember going down the canal plastics? Yeah, of course. 
Canal Plastics was like the most fertile inventor ground. You go to Canal Plastics and they have these plastic boxes, these fucking half vacuum form domes. They they come to like I remember, boy, one day when I have money, I'm gonna buy a 24 inch vacuum form clear plastic dome. I don't know what the fuck I'm gonna do with it, but man, you know, when I have 80 bucks to spend on one of those, I'm buying one of those. And you'd go down there and. I would always just buy bowls and squares and cubes, you know. Like now, like the, the home delivery weed guy would get all his little home delivery weed boxes down yeah. there. And uh, so I would always have shit from that. So I got a styrofoam ball from there, cut it open, scooped out both sides, and I put a motor in it. And I connected it so that the motor is going, so the motor is connected to the thing. So the, you put the ball down and it just goes, bounces around the floor. And I brought it to Mark. I go, Mark, what can I do with this? He goes, uh, he's got a funny voice. He's like, I, I don't know. I don't know what the fuck you're doing. I, <laughs> fucking motor. I don't know. I don't know what, what, what the fuck is it. I don't know. I said, I don't know, Mark. I go, I think it's fun. I go, it's, it's a novelty. He goes, how do you market it? Is it for a young kid, an old kid? I, I don't know. Fast forward like five years later, Bumble Ball came out. You remember the Bumble Ball? No, it's like a, a round it. ball with like knobs on it, and then you, it has a motor in it that goes, and the thing jumps around. I I would have thought it was like kind of close to like a pet toy or something like that, where you're like the cat well, chases the tail around or something. That's like what that. the fun part about making toys is because you just come up with this stupid fucking thing that bounces around your desktop, and you're like, okay, what marketing can I hang on it that makes it appropriate? Is it a dog toy? Could have been a dog toy. Uh, is it for a little kid or is it for a big kid? Is it part of something else? Can it be a game? Is it a thing where it has to like nyuck, nyuck, outside the circle and it goes outside the circle and if, you know do you bet on it? So like that's what the fun part of the toy business was is like hanging a marketing campaign on something and just figuring out what it is. You know, developing like a scheme for a name, a logo. You know, that's that was that's always the fun stuff and and I still do that quite a bit. Back to Canal Plastics, my only Canal Plastics story. So Canal Street's this great street in the city um, that's basically, you can go from the Lincoln Tunnel across to the Manhattan Bridge. Yeah. And it also separates uh, Little Italy from Chinatown on the east side. And it's just such a crazy place. And they have lots of, you know, basically, it's like they're dudes selling, you know, fake like, Gucci bags and stuff like that. Yeah. But Canal Plastics was this very, and it's, Canal Plastics also across the street from Pearl Paint, which was one of the great uh, paint supply companies paint supply places in New York City as well. Canal Plastics, I was working for Charlie Palmer, this restaurateur, and at the time I was working for him when during 9-11, and I was a project manager for a lot of his restaurants and I was building stuff for his restaurants and he had this, where the Apple Store in Grand Central is now used to be his restaurant called Metrazor and he wanted to do a raw bar that was illuminated so he says, I want you to I want you to design a uh, stainless steel catch base and that we can put ice in. But I want there to be lights in the ice so people can see, like, you know, the light coming from. So he's like, I don't know. I don't want to know how you're going to do it. I want you to do it. So I went down to one of those other restaurant supply stores to get the basin made from stainless steel. Bowery, too? Yeah, on Bowery. In the Bowery, there was guys who you could have stuff welded up quick. Not like Will. Oh, the Chinese Chinese guys. Yeah, like the Chinese guys. Not like Will Shear. Will Shear is going to give you, you know, the, the highest level. 
level the Dell right. field you're going to find. But uh, <laughs> but but uh, so he said you have to figure out how you're going to illuminate this this ice box. So I went to Canal Plastics and I found this um, I found this uh, piece of tubing, this clear tubing, and then I got one of those self-contained uh, fluorescent lights, and then I got cover, uh, pieces and I got like doubles. I was so afraid I was going to electrocute someone, and then I basically put the uh, the um, the self-contained uh, light in the tube, and then I, uh, apply, I I use like a silicone to like secure the ends, and then I put it in a, a redundant one, a second one, just in case there was leakage. And then it was like this. We called it the submarine because it was this tube that the the the, the every day before the ice guy came, they had to stick in the bottom, and then they fill it with ice. And then every time I walked by, I was always waiting to hear someone got like a shock or something like that. But <laughs> yeah, canal plastic saved my ass. They had you could get that thick plastic, uh, the clear, the clear. Actually, I also did, I did some lanterns from uh, from Metrozor. I called them boom tubes, and they were these long illuminated lanterns. And I got the acrylic from uh, uh, Canal Canal Street Plastic. You could get everything there. It was. Do you that, remember that was, the wall of like Mylar rolls? And I you, do. Oh, you go yeah. there and you buy. You know, give me give me the the glowy uh, orange like clear plexi like roll up like vinyl. You'd end up getting like a yard of everything. You roll it up in a tube, put it in the corner of your apartment, and never fucking touch it. <laughs> it's 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 hard to find places like that now like yeah. canal plastics i mean you knew especially if you had to get you know you could get away with never having to weld again you could just have stuff fabricated down in on the bowery and it was usually very inexpensive i mean you're not going to get like you know high level welding but i mean at the right. same time they're going to get a, you know you need a table built they're going to build it for you it's going to might look like shit underneath but it's fine you know it's funny uh, i'll tell you my quick uh, canal plastic story so the word was coming down in like whatever I don't know two thousand and like nine or eight that Canal Plastics was going to go out of business, like or that it's going to turn into a phone store. Or they sold the building. Like I kept hearing this like buzzing, and then one day I was in on Avenue A and Seventh Street. I can't remember the name of the the bar. It's a corner bar, Niagara or something. The, right next to it, there was a place that had like tables that you could eat at. I can't I can't remember the names of these places. This near Doc Holidays, right? Yeah, it might have been Doc Holidays. Yeah, like it yeah. was one of those places over there. I go in there for some reason in the afternoon to meet somebody and sitting at a table in like a, like a VIP table where there's like a big semicircle that would be like a VIP section in the daytime. Like people are afternoon drinking, but there's only like 20 people in the whole place is the entire cast of people that would be at that raised up counter at Canal Plastics. The young, sharp looking black guy with the scar through his lip <laughs> and the white Jewish guy that was always chewing on his tongue. Do these names ring? Do these ring a bell? I mean, I don't remember that. that I don't remember oh. that. I wasn't there that much. I don't oh, yeah. I can no, remember well, there the was this like, Jewish guy that had like you know the, the things that hang out of your shirt. What is that called? The sitsits. He had the sitsits and and but he would chew on his tongue. I'm not even yeah. making like I'm not even trying to be yeah. silly. That's what he would do. He had this like nervous thing. He was always chewing on his tongue. And this and this sharp looking black kid who had a big scar through his lip. Yeah. And I and they and then the other cast and they were all sitting there and I go over. I'm like guys. It's in the middle of the afternoon. What happened? Like, you should all be at Canal Plastics like you are literally from 6 a.m. to probably 10 every day. And now it's in the middle of the day. And they go, it's over. I'm like, that's it? The store is closed? And they they didn't know what to do. They all went to work that day. And for some weird reason, they left Canal Street and came to Avenue A to have, like, a powwow about what's next for all of them. Oh, my God. And that little, like, one-minute window, I happened to see them all sitting there. It's such a funny New York moment. I was like, guys, what's going to happen to the place? They're like, it got sold. That's it's it. The, this, the business is gone. It's over. What year and, was that? 
probably like 2007 or 8 or 9, somewhere around wow. there. Huh. Because that's the thing about New York is if you need something, you don't really have to leave the, you don't really have to leave Manhattan. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're obviously now they're Home Depots, but at the time there weren't Home Depot. When I was yeah. there, there were no Home Depots. Well, then and, there was and, Canal Rubber. Like, I, think, yeah, I don't all even those know places. if still there. But then, all you know, those places. And the Army Navy places over near 6th Avenue were amazing. The electronics place, there was just bins of electronics. I didn't know what to do with any of that shit because I'm not an electronics guy, but I would buy it for props. You know, if you were going to make a toy that needed to look like, you know, some Star Wars shit, we'd go there and buy some of the doodads and glue them on stuff. When you went to the China for the first time, were you, how did you feel? It was amazing. It was incredible. It's funny. Um, so Mark introduced me to several interesting characters, which helped shape my life, honestly. Uh, Jeff Sheridan was a magician who I was helping. Mark was a magician. Mark said it to Kata, the teacher that introduced me to the toys. He was a magician, like, and he introduced me to many other magicians because I would help them develop illusions and tricks of theirs, like even like sleight of hand stuff and some stage stuff. And I was spending a lot of time with Jeff Sheridan, and Jeff is an amazing character. Honestly, I lost touch with him. I don't even know if he's still alive. But Jeff was an amazing thinker, inventor, uh, artist, surrealist artist. So I started work at a toy company in 92 as like semi full time. Like they wanted me to be independent because they liked that spirit about me. They're like, look, we don't want you to have to come in every day. We just want you to be who you are. Like they really saw in me, you know, uh, you know, who I became, which was very, very commendable. So anyway, so Andy, the owner of that toy company, he's only a couple years older than me, but family business. He's like, I need you to go to Hong Kong. And I was like, Oh, what? Like, in 92. He's like, I need you to go to Hong Kong. I'm like, you got it. Cause I was developing this toy. It was a pasta maker, but like a home pasta maker for kids, just like the regular pasta maker with like the interwoven things that slice and make ribbons. I yeah. made it all out of in plastic and then ha- you had to take it apart to clean it. So we made like the first toy business pasta maker. And I remind me, to, I have an, I have an, inv- I have an invention. I want to pass by you, a pasta invention. Okay. So I done. made this thing where like you'd open it up and change the rollers to flat rollers. You'd open it up and put in this, the cutting rollers. And, uh, so Andy's like, yeah, you got to go to Hong Kong. And I was spending a lot of time with Jeff. And I that when I found out I had to go to Hong Kong, I said to Jeff, I go, Jeff, I got to go to Hong Kong. I go, I'm, I haven't been on a plane in 10 years. I go, now I got to sit on a plane for 24 hours. I go, I'm deathly afraid to fly. And Jeff just, he looked me like right in the eye and just goes, you know how you get over your fear of flying? I go, how it goes, just be in the moment. What a, what a thing to say. <laughs> I mean, like, what a, a stupid thing to say. I would be like, you know what? Go fuck yourself, Jeff. I, I'm not interested in that. Kind of, that is a, this is, what a terrible piece of advice. No, but I be in the God, moment. It helped me. It helped me because now here I am, you know, shortly thereafter, maybe a week later, two weeks later, I'm on a plane for the first time in 10 years. And I'm going to be on this plane for 20 hours. I think the first oh stop was in Korea. And then from Korea, or maybe Taiwan. I think we stopped in Taiwan. You got to stop somewhere for gas at the time. Now you can fly direct. But somewhere you had, you had to always stop in Anchorage, Alaska, or Korea, or uh, we would stop in Seoul or Taiwan. And But I just remember like hearing Jeff say, just be in the moment. Okay, like the plane isn't crashing now. It's not yeah. crashing now. Yeah. One minute yeah. later, it's not yeah. crashing now. For 20 hours, 24 hours. Great, I, thanks. I got to the point where I like, I like the plane is like could be flipping over and I wouldn't care. And you like people in the plane is screaming and I'm just like, oh, I gotta get another soda. You know, like I got to that point where like it totally didn't bother me. And I've been on planes that have like completely, you know, lost like a couple hundred feet instantly and you know, you feel like your stomach coming to your mouth. So just out of curiosity, in a situation like this, who pays for the ticket? 
Oh, the client. The, okay, that good. case I was working. Uh, I okay. paid right. for my own ticket a few times. Me and my brother used to, when we started our own toy company eventually, um, but I was always independent. So I was still, even though I own my own toy company, I was like, if we came up with a really good idea that didn't fit in our little toy company, we'd sell it to somebody else if we could. We'd show it around. Um, but we would always buy two business class tickets for the price of one on Gold Amex. Wow. And so there was like a little trick. There's lots of little tricks. Like we'd always fly... We found this other little trick through a friend in the toy business. Instead of going to a regular travel agent, we would go down to Chinatown and book a ticket on Cathay Pacific because that's where the best flights were because that's where all yeah. the Chinese people were going back yeah. to Hong Kong. So we would always book our ticket through this little travel agent right by the Manhattan Bridge. And uh, yeah, so all these little tricks came up. And But I went to and from Hong Kong, I don't know, maybe 100 times in the next 20 years. So the first time you get down there, what was that like? It was it was mind-blowing. It was like It was like... Being down in like lower Manhattan for the first time, but like on another planet where like everybody's <laughs> oh, different, you know? Yeah, <laughs> Cause yeah I can Chinese. totally understand. Yeah. And uh, just walking through um, these, I can't remember the names of these parts of the city, but there was a part in the city which was just like Canal Street. And walking up and down and seeing somebody like whack the head off a frog and put fresh frog legs in a bag, <laughs> or like you get like a guy's got a handful of eels. And he does this thing where he like slices down the middle of the eel to like gut it or something and puts it in a bag and a woman ties it in a knot and walks away like she just got fresh fruit. Yeah. You know? And then like a guy is like gutting and butchering a pig in like a flea market spot. Yeah. At this open air market where like you know that would never fly in America because this it's, it's a it's a he's butchering a pig like the size of like two humans right there. <laughs> like in a flea it, Next to a guy who's getting his teeth put in, made out of wood, just so he can at least eat. Vanity had nothing to do with it. Just complete. And just seeing the practicality of, of the Chinese. And then there's a whole different culture between being in Hong Kong and then being in southern China. Like what I said earlier, when you cross the border to go into southern China. The practicality is just unbelievable. And it's really shaped my approach to being practical. You know, you see a guy driving a motorcycle with like, you know, 25 foot piece of steel on it. He's like, okay, just don't hit anything. And then you see, a, you know, a guy like driving a motorcycle with two 55 gallon drums attached to either side. We see guys on motorcycles all the time with like uh, gas tanks. You know, you were a welder, you're welding, you know, with like the giant propane tank or the giant like O2 tanks, like crazy. And you'd be like, oh yeah, oh, you could put five people on a motorcycle if you needed to. Sure. Why not? You know? So they're just testing the limits of all these like traveling techniques. It's just it's just incredible. I listened to a great interview with you, and I'm going to blink it in the show notes. From it was a great interview in terms of your. I'm not doing the origin story here, guys. It's it's just, it's not happening. If you want the good <laughs> origin story, you know, not everybody knows who J- Jimmy is. There's a, there's a. I'm going to link this episode of Say Yes to Success. It kind of really kind of brings it. I had a lot of oh, questions Justin, from that. It's a, it a great, it's a great, great podcast, and you did a great job with you. Thanks. I was interested in what you were saying when you got to China, how you were dealing with the factories and the price changes based on the factories and how they were like competing for your business. Yeah. yeah. What was that like? Well, it's funny because a lot of times, again, I was representing a company. It wasn't like the word, it wasn't my actual money, but it's the, the, the factories like make pennies and like they literally make pennies on certain things. So and then it gets to with some of the guys I'm representing like it's really like the negotiation it really gets down to like the number and I always thought it was foolhardy because I, I never I don't really like negotiating I, right. I like giving people the benefit of the doubt so if I meet somebody and they're like 
okay, uh, I can make this part for you for four bucks. I'm like, all right, that's cool. I still make a lot of profit. There are guys that I work with in the toy business like, no, I want it for two. Go, yeah. go to any, go to ten of the. Fa- I need it for two, because he needed to instead of making you know, thirty five percent profit, he wanted to make forty five percent profit. And and in my mind, I'm like, like, isn't it? We're here. The guy's trustworthy. He's got a great factory. But we can beat him up with you know maybe we get better volume. We can beat him up for a price. But we always had the, a couple of guys I work for just wanted to constantly shop around and. You know, you go down the road, you go to dinner, you you know, you, you get wined and dined and entertained, and then you got to go, all right, I'm going to go do this with somebody else for the same exact reason I did it with you, and you might not get the job. And so, you know, it was I, I, I didn't really like doing that part of the business, but, you know, when I worked for somebody, I would have to do that. When so, you work for somebody making toys, how do they, like, gurgling guts, how do they figure out the volume of what to make? You know, this is interesting because for you as a maker and me as a maker, most of our listeners as makers, you constantly think about, okay, well, what are we going to invest in in regards to how much output are we going to make? And I, I, I just wonder, what is the metric with toys in terms pre-sales. of like... Pre-sales. It's all, it's all just like any other industry. That's why there's a toy fair. You have the toy fair. You just meet with all your retailers and all the people you have good relationships with. And they say, they'll say, okay, I'll buy 20000 And then, you know, you meet with Walmart. Walmart's like, this is pretty cool. I'll put in an order for 50000 And you meet with a little, like, gift shop distributor. And he's like, I'll buy 20000 And now all of a sudden you have, you know, you have 90000 on order. And then you might make, well, let me make 120. Let me be optimistic in case we get reorders. And then you develop a relationship with a factory where you can say, give me another 10000 Give me another 10000 You know, so you can keep feeding the chain. It never dawned on me that that's what those fairs were doing. Yeah, yeah, that's all for pre-sales. Oh, my God. Because I would imagine it's... Because I know that I used to go to the fancy food show at the Javits Center, and I'd always wonder, well, are they just making connections with, like, Gourmet Garage or Gristides or something like that? I could never really figure it out. But There's I mean, a lot I, of that, of course, of course. I would... That, that's fascinating that, that, that they're doing all these toy manufacturers are, are coming up with, like, a small batch bringing them to a, a convention and then doing pre-sales that's that now all of a sudden it makes more it's very uh, it's interesting because yeah. you're not like on the hook with a pallet full of gurgling guts with I'm nowhere deal, I'm to go I'm personally dealing with that now with um, you know with my own production say for instance like we would make ice picks and everybody was asking me to make them an ice pick in the beginning so go back six years ago everyone's like make me an ice pick I'm like make one yourself that's what my whole mantra right. is you do it yourself make it yourself uh, I don't know how to make something. You know, it's funny. I hear you go like, you know, <laughs> it's funny. I always laugh and you're like, I, I don't do that. I don't want to. I just want to make a knife. <laughs> but so I hear people all the time telling me I don't want to make it or it's a gift for my husband. I don't make shit. He's the one that right. makes stuff. But I want I want to surprise him. So uh, my buddy Luis Gonzalez, he said to me one day, he goes, why don't you just like pre-sell 100 and if you sell them, then you make them. I was like, wow, that's pretty clever. I didn't, you know, that's what I did in the toy business. I didn't even think about it. Because I was being lazy. I had to manufacture them personally. I didn't just like coach somebody else and help engineer it. So I was being a little lazy. Anyway, we pre-sold 100 immediately and I had to make that 100. And then that process of making that first 100, stepping up, confronting reality, knowing that now, like, you know, in my own tiny little way, I just had, I just ran a successful Kickstarter. I sold 100 of these things at $60 each. Now I have to make and engineer them and make sure everybody gets a good quality product. And the ones that I was making for myself, I would solder them with electric solder. They would break. Now I'm like, shit, I got to solder them with silver solder. So I had a lesson with my sister who's a jewelry designer. She taught me how to silver solder and she taught me some techniques. And so I went back and I made the 100 with silver solder. I figured out this little technique to keep the, the tube from sliding off. And 
that that established that product. And then eventually, I could make as it took time. I would make a hundred and pre-sell. I pre-sell and make a hundred, pre-sell, make a hundred, pre-sell. And then I realized I can just make them, and they would always sell. So now I make a hundred every couple of weeks, and they always sell. They just put them in the store. So when I put a hundred in the store, they sell. I put a hundred in the store, they sell. There's going to be that moment where I make a hundred, and I only sell ten, and that's the end of it. And then I have you know ninety gifts to give away. That's just kind of how I look at it. That's really amazing that you're mentioning this because with makers, well, especially in in my situation, I was doing pre, I had to do pre-sales because Mm -hmm. the reason why is because I had so many different variations of knives and colors that I, one time, right before I started with my business partner, Tony, I decided to make 10 of the same knife and I wanted an orange handle. And it was just a very utilitarian, like a small uh, pairing pairing knife size, EDC knife. And I thought, I'll just move these and see what happens. And everybody said, well, can I have a different colored handle? And it got to the point where it was was like in the beginning, it was impossible to just do, to just make them and sell them. But now, and then we've been doing for the past number of years, it's all been pre-sale. And the pre-sale helps because you have that money up front and you got to deliver. But it, it is such a great way to establish. Now we're trying to catch completely up I got like 25 more knives to finish before I'm completely caught up and then I want to start making them to sell them directly so yeah. it is I'm, it makes me I'm now I'm happy that you that you were, were, were pre-sale was such an important part of you starting oh, yeah. on, on yeah, this. yeah and uh, you know but now like I, I'm very fortunate to have the audience I have and you know the loyalty that I have for many people you know I have guys that every time I put out a batch of an ice pick even if there's something slightly different about it they'll buy it like I did right. twisted ice picks then I did ones with magnets in them. and then I did ones with magnets and, and level bubbles in them and I have guys that bought every every little weird incarnation the small ones that we make now we, and we have the classic and then we have the mini and the mini classic it's like all this silly shit it's almost a joke but people like them and they sell them you know I just- uh, Aaron just passed Aaron my assistant passed away yeah. and, you know you and I talked privately about that so thank you um, and the last 40 that were on his table, fans said, why don't you monogram them as if, you know, to honor, it's a great idea. So his initials were Jeremy Aaron Matias. So I put J-A-M on the, the handle of you know, just a little metal stamp set. I put J-A-M on, a, on those 40 and just recently sold them. You know, no extra money or anything. I just put them out there. And people, you know, who love and respected uh, Aaron bought those. So. Yeah, that ep- I'm going to link the episode of Make the Making It podcast where you eulogize him. It was so powerful, and, and it was just uh, so. It was so powerful is the right word, and and your your two partners really did the right thing by keeping their mouth shut and let you go because <laughs> because I would have like you know a lot of podcasters what they do is they interrupt all the time, and I was just glad I was just like these guys these guys know what they're doing. I mean, they're up to 300 issues, they know what they're doing, but it was a very very positive uh, powerful thing, and, and I, I felt very very like I reached out to you and stuff like that but uh it must yeah, have, no, i must have been, i know that it was a very very difficult situation it was i mean when you know I, we we podcast every wednesday morning like for the last five years every wednesday morning at nine o'clock we don't even have to talk in fact we never talk unless there's an emergency we meet exactly nine o'clock every wednesday yeah. morning we don't have like that's like what's good like you know we're just a good trustworthy group and i mentioned to those guys aaron passed away and they're like do you still want to do the show tomorrow i was like no, let's do it. Let's do it. You know, and obviously, I was when I first found out, I was hysterical, crying, and uh, you know, my girlfriend and I cried about it a lot because Taylor loved Aaron. Aaron helped her out with a tremendous amount, and you know, and not only did I cry because I, of my own personal loss, I cried because you know, the world is missing this 
this right. great dude and you know he was just finding his groove again you know he's, he's reinvented himself several times and I really felt like this time here in East Durham getting involved with me and all the people he met through me I really felt like this was this is it this is he's going to ride this one out to you know to, to the end and I didn't expect it to happen so soon no, you know, of course. he had so many more opportunities to to just do what he loved to do and you know that's help and and you know, help expand what I'm doing, and help expand what he's doing. He just got his own little shop in my complex, and uh, you know, so that's going to become my little shop. He rented from my landlord, like a little thousand square foot space. All his personal belongings are in there, and so now I'm going to take over that space, and you know, with his family, figure out what to do with his personal belongings. But you know, eventually that will be my space. Yeah, it's still very fresh. I mean, it's yeah. like hard to make you know decisions right right now. I mean, it just yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, Back- yeah not expected. Oh, of course. I mean, look, you're makers. You're not ready for things to be taken away from you. I mean, it's easy yeah. to like you're, you're creating something is one thing. The visual visualizing something and then making it happen. But when something's taken away from you or someone's yeah. taken away from you, it's the it's the complete antithesis of what you do as a person. It, that yeah. you create something and for it to be taken from you, it's 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 like you know you have the air message goes off and you don't really know how to yeah. comprehend it. I mean, it's like it's completely yeah. like without you know. It's it's always shocking and it's always upsetting and um, you know I'm, I'm very sorry that it happened. Oh well, well, thank you. Back to I wanted to make a point about your ice picks. I love your ice picks, thank and you. I just want you to know I have an ice pick specially for you. I'm not telling you anything more about that. I'm making something for you. <laughs> I'm going to make something for I'm making something for you. Hopefully, I'll have it for Maker's Camp when we go to when I see a Maker's oh, Camp. We're going to talk about Maker's Camp a little later. But uh, what I love is, is I, the last metal shop I worked at, we did it was uh, we were doing a lot of railings for the insides of elevators. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, satin. We would do satin finish on uh, you know like. Like a, a, a flat tubing, and then we would have these machines. We'd have all these different jigs and setups. Where did and you work? Every, what was the name of that place? It was called Paxton Metalcraft, and it was in Peekskill, and it was also okay. called Elevator Accessories. Uh-huh. And we were doing railings, like traditional satin finish, uh, you know, spun railings for buildings. We were doing, uh, we were doing a lot of outside, you know, cladding for buildings. Yeah. But then we were doing a, lot, a ton of elevator, you know. Basically, so like if like at like a hospital or something, your cart doesn't crash into the side of the elevator. You know, sure. you'll see those like rectangular, and then they're kind of the ends are kind of bent in, and then there are these yeah. um, you know aluminum parts that kind of press them off. So there was a lot of that, and we had all these different stations, and there were these little jig setups, and you put it in here, and then you jam this in here, and then you do the sat finish, and you bend. Sure. I noticed that when you a couple days ago on your stories, when you had your you were going through it all and showing how you put the ring on the on the thing and then you set it up and it was very much along the lines of I love the manufacturing end of how you make your ice picks. Yeah. Well, it's funny we had to keep we just and, and it still evolves. This is so funny. So I must have we must have sold at least 10 12,000 ice picks at this point, maybe more. I don't know. I have to ask my website guy who keeps track of the shit. But the, there's a dimple in the tube and the right. dimple in the tube creates the friction so we dimple the end of the brass tube and then we slot it so that there's a little spring tension the dimple creates the friction and the the v-block and the uh the center punch that i used to make the dimple have been the same since the very beginning i got them from my friend mark said ducati when he was giving away some of his toy business tools that he didn't use anymore so i had that's how i got them 25 years ago so they were around my shop so I started making this thing and I developed this dimple 
Just the other day, for the first time since the beginning of me ever making the ice picks, I welded the center punch to an arm that's suspended over the V-block so that I don't have to constantly keep picking up one and putting it down. Right. I'm like, why didn't I do this 10,000 pieces ago? And uh, it works perfect. It's just suspended right above where I need to do it. I just I put the ice pick in the V-block, I put a little pressure on the arm, and I tap it with a hammer. Whereas the previous 10,000, almost every one of them I did, I'd like center it, hold it, tap it, pick it up, put it down, put the other one in, pick it up, center it, adjust it, hold it, tap it. So I just took the thinking out of it for the first time in 10,000 pieces. Most makers would think 10,000 pieces, I'm not doing it. In my mind, I'm similar to you in the sense of I like the ability to figure out how to simplify the process. And I love the idea of doing volume by hand and yeah. figuring out ways in which to make the job easier. And I, it doesn't, it doesn't seem, it seems very exciting to me. I'll be honest with you, because I love that idea of not monotony, but I mean, it is a bit of monotony, but at the yeah. same time, it's the satisfaction of being able to be consistent through all those iterations. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny. I, I, in the beginning, like exactly the way the tube touches the ring, I would, in the beginning, I had this little mill in my basement city shop, and I'd put the tube in uh, a vise, and then I'd run, the, I'd run the mill into the end of the tube, so I'd end up with an eighth inch half round at the end of the tube, and I'd put the, the ring into that half round and solder that. I thought that was the most perfect joint. But then sometimes it would be a little off center. I wasn't really good with my machining techniques back then. And then I realized it would be funny if it was just, it would be better if it was just a flat versus a flat. So yeah. I put a little flat spot on the ring and then I flatten the, I crumped the end of the tube. So now instead of it being round, it's got a little flat spot right at the end. So these various techniques have just been developed. And occasionally when I meet somebody, they'll show me their ice pick and they're like, look, look, what batches us? I'm like, oh, that's definitely, you know, the first two years. Because I could tell the way that little spot is soldered to the tube. There's going to be have to be a poster of all the different years of the different, <laughs> right. you know, the, that would I mean that would be that, and then people can figure out which one that which one they have. I have to remember. I remember I said that I had an idea for a pasta making machine yeah. years ago when we lived on 14th and First back in '96 to 2000, and it was great because you know it was a tiny apartment and my wife was studying to be a nurse, so I would leave. I would just get stoned and then crawl, you know, curl up in a drawer or something like that or walk down the street <laughs> and it was so close to little Italy in Chinatown we were constantly going down to Chinatown on the weekends and stuff and I always loved street food but I hated eating Chinese I loved I wanted Chinese street food but I hated eating out of those little containers with chopsticks while I'm walking it fuck I hated it <laughs> so I wanted to come up with this idea for a way to to uh, basically like make like a loom for pasta for like noodles right. and I wanted to so it would be interlaced the noodles to make like a wrap and I was going to call it the noodle loom. And so I was going to basically like a uh, weave noodles yeah, so that you yeah. can kind of hold it like like a like a piece of pizza. Like a burrito. <laughs> That's fine. And then I, I I talked to my partner Tony about it, you know, back in the you know two thousand one. I was just like, dude, we got to come up with a noodle loom, and then you're going to be able to have dry pasta, and then they put it in the water, and then they can plate it. Like it'll be it'll be like a when they plate it, it'll look like a like a like a lace. And the noodle loom was my that was my claim to fame. I think I gave that to to, to uh, Tyler Bell. I told Tyler Bell he can go with the noodle <laughs> loom. I don't think yeah. I think if, if Tyler Bell takes it, it's going to have to have like razor blades on it or something yeah, like that. Yeah, noodle loom tennis racket. The noodle loom tennis racket. <laughs> right. I, I one of the I just watched your latest video uh, of the 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 um, 
the rebuilds of the of the hammers. Oh yeah, the, the leather stacked hammers. This morning, yeah, yeah. I loved it. And Thank one you. of the things that I love about all your videos is you remind me about my when, when I was a kid, my dad, the first thing, I wasn't allowed to have guns in the house as a kid, like toy guns, like he right. was against it. Right. He was a World War II veteran. He just didn't he didn't like the idea of me running around with toy guns. So he said, "I'll what I'll do is I'll show you how to make one in the shop." So he had me on the bandsaw at like 9. Right. So I was like using the bandsaw and he showed me how to use the bandsaw, and I'm—you're the only other person I've ever seen use the bandsaw the way I learned how to use the bandsaw. Like where, you're, where you're carving. Yeah. I don't think it's sculpting. I have this right. argument with knife makers. Right. I don't think it's—I don't because it's reductive. I right. think it's carving. Oh, okay. So the way yeah, sculpting is a kind of ambidextrous. It's reductive and additive, isn't it? Yeah, I see it more yeah. like carving. And he right. used to do that. You know, you you draw out the shape, and then all of a sudden you're putting it on its angle, and you're holding it, and then you're slowly taking off the—you're slowly taking off the material material in a way that it's much more free form it's much more it's not it's much more free form and yeah. it, it actually you're the only other person I ever saw do that maybe because i just don't watch a lot of bandsaw guys <laughs> but 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 the only other person i really blacksmithing is that way where yeah. you're breaking the corners everything yeah. is about breaking the corners yeah. and i just wanted to know i wanted you to know that like when I saw you cutting back the material on the hammers, it really was just like, that's the way I grew up doing all, I mean, all my fishing lures, the giant fishing lure sculptures, that's how I would do, that's how I'd carve them with a the bandsaw. Yeah. You're just going back and forth and using it like a, like a razor. Yep, yep, yep. I, you know how I developed that technique? I talked about this in my bandsaw tips video, which is about six, seven years old. It, I, when I was a kid, and, you know, if we get into talking about knife making, like, I make knives now. I'm not. I'm no. I'm no bladesmith. I'm no. You know. What is, what is the, the thing you just were talking with Steve Schwarzer about? Like the bladesmith association. Bladesmith. Oh, the like, ABS. The ABS. Like, I'm yeah. no ABS guy. I'm like you know. I'm like a garage guy when it comes to making knives. Um, but when I was a kid, it started with Frankenstein. Uh, not Frankenstein. Uh, Flintstones. Remember the Flintstones when he stays at his, at his grandpa Giggles' house, Uncle Giggles' house. He has to sit in the night inside the mansion to get no. the. You don't remember? I remember that some of the, I didn't. I wasn't a big Flintstones and Jets. That was not my Hanna Barbera favorites. All right. Well, Fred, Fred Flintstone has to stay a night in, in Uncle Giggles' mansion, and then he gets like the money in the will. Right. Okay. And, okay. And okay. Uh, and he's the guy that has like the the whiskey barrel like with suspenders and like the ball of cap with the daisy on it. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> kind of, sort of. I mean, the, the premise sounds very familiar, but I'm not 100% so sure. So his henchman was like a guy like Lurch. Just, I'm talking about cartoons now. Yeah. And he had a big machete switchblade. It was a handle, and he pushed the button, and then like a machete, uh, like a meat cleaver would come out of the handle because it was a cartoon. It was fake. So he would like push the button, and like a meat cleaver would come out of his hand. So when I was a kid, I had to make one of those. I immediately went to my dad's workshop, and I made it out of paneling. I made the blade out of paneling and the handle out of like an old piece of wood, and I carved it. I started carving it on the bandsaw. I wasn't allowed to use the bandsaw when my dad was around. Eventually, I, I would just use it when he wasn't around. I tell this story classically. My brother and my cousin and I would trade. Somebody would turn the pull the pulley on the bandsaw, and somebody would pass wood through it. That was only for making small cuts. But when I got older and I was allowed to use it and I could start to sculpt with it, I started making wooden knives. And like that first knife from that Flintstone episode was the first one I wanted to make. But after that, I started making knives. And so I'd get like a three-quarter by three-inch by ten-inch piece of pine that was in the garbage. My dad was always making things out of pine. And I would start sculpting it. 
and I'd put the bevel on the blade, I'd cut the handle back, and then I'd cut all the, and just keep breaking the corners until I had like a sculpted knife. Yeah. And, uh, and that's really how I developed that technique of just like free forming on the bandsaw because I started making wooden knives when I was a kid. And then yeah. I'd make them for my friends, and it would be Halloween. Everybody wanted like a pumpkin stab or a pumpkin hatchet, and I would just freeform cut this stuff on on the bandsaw. And that's I really just kind of learned like in a vacuum. It's because it it is it does take you know the the woodworking and metalworking. There are these levels. You know, you, there are levels between the difference between uh, you know like a blacksmith and a machinist. There's so many different intentions. Mm-hmm. You know, especially with woodworking. You know, that idea of being more of a sculptor and carving it versus you know a fine a fine woodworker who's you know planing and machining the wood down to a very specific situation. You, you know, you would never bring a you know amazing built-in cabinets that you'd never bring a, a bandsaw to right. I just find it to be it's one of those little niches of like being able to be have finesse being able to be confident in your action mm-hmm. and being like satisfied with your decision making yeah you know, there's well, something funny. very freeing about that yeah no it, it's funny because when I first started carving carving wood I could do I, I used to be much more practiced at carving like intricate images and stuff but I remember getting over the point of basically saying like the fear is always you're going to take too much away and you're going to ruin right. the image you're looking for. And then I remember getting confident to the point where I was just like, fuck it, whatever happens, I'll make it work. And when I'm carving those handles, like the hand, like the handle has to look like a certain type of way. If I carve too much off, I'm going to fuck it up. I could do two things. I could not show it to the camera and face it away, <laughs> edit that piece of the video out, or just work with it and see what I could do. Instead of having it that classic handle shape, maybe make it a little bit more creative, a little bit. But, you know, the idea of saying, fuck it, I'm going to deal with whatever happens. Or if I chip out too much, I can always just CA glue it back in and then recarve it. You know, just there have been times where I'm like down on my hands and knees looking for the chip that I popped out and too much went with it. And I'm yeah. like, fuck. And there's like a thousand chips on my bench and I'm trying to find the one that fits back in I know it's kind of in this area let me try these three oh that's it and then I see a glue it back in and then I recarve around it and you know integrate it right back in you know what sees the glue so you know being able to be confident knowing you can go one way or the other if this if there's a serious gouge just deal with it you know and bands or free bands or carving you know like free diving you could you know you could <laughs> it gets could, away from you pretty it easy gets away from you if you're free carving and the most dangerous thing about like free carving with the guard all the way up is bumping the blade, like you know, forgetting like your uh, you know your spatial awareness of where the blade too is. comfortable. Yeah, and I've done it a million times. I bumped my hand, I bumped the back of my hand against the blade. I have a serious scar between my two fingers. Where I was just free carving something as a kid, and I just literally like the blade went right between my fingers, like because I went to throw something away. And like I threw something, the garbage was on the other side of the band, so behind it. And I went to throw it, my fingers just bumped right into the blade, the open guard, unguarded blade. When I was uh, when I first started making these giant fishing lures, we didn't have a bandsaw big enough for me to actually use it, so I would have to carve all of them with a re- with a tiger saw, with a reciprocating saw. Oh, so I crazy. I had to come up. Well, there's all I could do. I didn't really yeah. have the the means otherwise, so I had to like laminate all this pine and figure out how I was going to hold it, mm-hmm. and then I would do everything with. And I got very very comfortable using just a reciprocating saw right. to do the same thing, but it was all those all these slices and slices and slices but almost. Using, when you're using that saw, you got to also say to yourself, okay, I'm going to stay basically a quarter of an inch away from where I want to be because I need to right. get rid of all that burr and shitty you know, right. reciprocating cuts so you could like work. So you get it close 
And then you, you basically get a blurry image, and then you focus it with either hand yeah. planes or sand. sand it was the only way I could move. I could yeah. remove the material fast enough. And it, yeah. But it was I was using the same technique. And now, with the knife handles that I make, I'm able to put. I put my. I don't futz around with the scales in the beginning to make them very tight. I make them. I make them big, and then I'm just going to reduce them down fast. Right. And I use those same techniques that I was using when I was a kid with the with the free form bandsaw. Except I'm not using the bandsaw as much because I, you know, I, koa is not <laughs> something. Koa is not cheap, so I'm, I'm doing the free form bandsawing with my with my grinders. But it's the same mindset, and it's like very fast. And there's something very like it's a flow state that I that I'm fascinated with, and it's just that getting them quick and getting the getting as much as fast as possible without like drawing lines and t i don't take micrometers out i refuse to do all that and it's it's yeah. very fast well, you know like i always say if it looks right to the eye i you know my classic thing everyone says you know if it looks right it is right or if it looks straight it is straight but um you know i always say if it if this side looks like that side then it is this the same right you know you you try and like when you see guys like, oh, how do I know it's the same? It doesn't matter if it's the same. If it looks the same, it is the same. You understand what I mean? Yeah, 100%. But that's the difference between the mindset of a machinist and the mindset of a blacksmith. You know, my I remember my my last, my, my probably my biggest influence was this uh, metal, uh, blacksmith named John Ledford, who was the lead man when I was there at the Center for Metal Arts. And he used to say to me, don't talk to me about a 16th. I don't want to know. Right, Anything right, right. under the 16th, don't talk to me. Don't talk to me about a 32nd. I ain't interested. Don't don't just and it was very much along the lines of like, should I get the micrometer? Because don't um, don't eyeball me, boy. I know the difference between five sixteenth and three eighths, and in between, I don't care. Right, you know, right. it was very much along the lines of you know, everything else doesn't really matter. I have a dilemma for you, and this right. is perfect. This is perfect because I need your help. What do you got? I got a call from. I'm in the Rolodex over at Condé Nast after right. I did that last video with them. When the casting agent needs a knife maker, I'm I, they call me. Right. So they're do they're going to do a video. They caught a hold of me and they wanted me to do a Zoom call. And by the time this airs, I'll either know if I got it or I didn't go out and get it. I don't really. It's not a big deal. So it's interesting. They want to do a TV sh or a video of making a knife. Mm -hmm. And then we were talking about whether or not they come up here or whatever. And it was interesting to me because I had all these things flying through my head. One of the things that's really important to me is being as organized as possible. So I know, you know, when I'm talking to people or when I'm doing stuff, I feel confident what I'm doing. So I'm trying to like, number one, I, I have the most control because I'm the expert, right? right? They don't have a, they don't have, you know, someone from the ABS at Condé Nast. Right. So in terms of how we're going to do it, they don't, I mean, I could make the whole thing up. They wouldn't know. Right, right. Uh, you know, I mean, that's the crazy thing about, you know, that's the well, crazy just, thing. We just shot this whole television show and the producers every morning would be like, so how long is this going to take? And, what, and, then like, and I just, I, Derek will tell you when you eventually have a conversation with Derek, I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Don't worry, we'll figure it out. And, and Derek just says, don't ask him. He's just going to say, fine, no problem. Because <laughs> he's going to make it up when you leave. <laughs> I think I think that this is the job, the new job of the next generation. I think you need to have like a Chris Zepp guy who knows how to do things or understands who is like a, who is like a, works for these video companies on like, 
the how you do things because we recently on Knife Talk were talking about this Food Network video, uh, sharpening video and the guy was like making it up. I mean, they all yeah. make it up. They all of them make it up. I mean, they use words and they just say what they think they're going to say. So now my situation for me is now I have the opportunity to do this if they say it would be crazy for for them not to say yes only because in far as close as cl- uh, proximity to Manhattan and knife makers and they had me on before and there's not right. a lot of knife makers who have a shop in you know this close to the city and they've right. had they used me before I have to figure out how I'm going to do this because obviously they don't know how long it takes. The right. Most of their videos are breaking down of tu- a tuna or something in one day. Right. I have to explain to them all the different processes and their eyes glaze over. And right. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to do this so it's the maximum amount of good information. Well, you guys, you and Cliff and John have those crazy boards and, you know, your beautiful watercolors. I mean... Why don't you just make another like the way Cliff? Or Cliff, who's done it? The, it was Cliff, right? Who made like the bottle opener progression? You start yeah. here, you know. Do one of those with a knife. I mean, but they need to. But this is very much along the lines of the way the videos are shot. They shoot them. They shoot them, and then there's voiceover. But it's very like technical. They yeah. want to do the technical part to show you how to do it. So basically, I'm trying to like figure out how if I'm going to stage every obviously I can't make a knife while they want I mean they're not going to yeah. be filming for three days right. you know, and they want the blacksmith because they want the boom bam and they want the sparks and everything like that and I'm trying to figure out in terms of and basically I don't really I, I want to know your impression of what you're, what you should be doing to how as a maker do you straddle the line of being a maker showing the way things are supposed to be and working with these television production companies mm-hmm. that really just want the final product and they don't really right. care about what how it's made no it's funny because a lot of times when I was doing the show and you, I will say for instance like if somebody's going to film me making a knife definitely try and make something with the blacksmithing equipment instead of reduct you know instead of starting from stock because it just looks better, you know. Right. Or just get some stock and hit it a little bit to put maybe you put a texture on the blade, you know. Yeah. There's some guys that that's their style, and and I always like the texture, and uh, you know, so you show a little bit of blacksmithing, but you know, you, you get to the point where then you're like trying to do like the real finishing, and it's like you guys don't have to film for 20 minutes. You're not going to use any. You already got like what you're going to use in the edit, where like the the splash and the you know. The, the glowing red and the dark. You know, you got what you need. You got your slow-mo shots. Stop watching me. I was like, I would say it to the camera guys all the time. I'm like, guys, you're just wasting film at this point. You're not going to use any of this. And, uh, I mean, unless you're waiting for me to get hurt, you're not going to use any of this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you go to grinding, grind a little bit. Grind for, like, let them film you for five minutes and then just say, okay, guys, you don't have to watch this anymore because it's going to be completely redundant. And, uh, you know, just that's what I did to these guys that were watching me work in these, these last few episodes we just did. I would remind them, like, unless you guys have nothing to do, you can stand here and film me, but it's just going to be hard drive space that someone's going to be resentful of. Other than that, you know, you got a few minutes here, a few minutes there, a few minutes there, and that's kind of how I shoot my videos. Uh, this morning's video, for instance, though, I put a ton of stuff in just to show because it did three separate things, and they were all kind of the same, but I shot each one of them a little bit different, and I scaled one up to, like, completely, so you got to see, like, an hour's worth of effort in, like, 15 seconds. Um, so that's another interesting way to take the approach is to speed it up. But, you know, that's probably not what Condé Nast will do. Well, see, here, here's my here's my personal dilemma. I want it to be really good for... I want it to be very good for the non-knife-making community who want to see a knife. You know, the, the new... The style that's 
trending now with custom knives, which I think is awesome, is a forged uh, uh, spine. Like that first half an inch to three quarters of an inch at the top, the f- you keep the forged scale on there. Right. But to like your you know everyday ham and eggers who want to see like a Wustoff, that's like caveman shit. So right. in my mind, I'm thinking I need to like satisfy those people so they see that I'm not just making like a DIY knife that's looking professional, but I also want to you know represent our community well because there is so much controversy with like Forge and Fire and all these shows in terms of mm-hmm. what they show and how they show. So I'm trying to straddle the fence. You, you could also all- take you could also take the approach of just do like a full on documentary where you just show the mundane and somehow make it interesting. You know, it's obviously up to the filmmaker. Show I, every it, little detail that you do. At least have every little detail represented one way or another of you, you know, maybe making a mistake or making a decision. Let's say, you know, you, you end up, uh, you know, getting a crack in the blade. Just instead of making a 10-inch knife, now it's going to be an 8-inch knife. You know, stuff like that. But I'm at the, but also, you know, your show, we'll talk a little bit about it in, in a second. You had a crew there. I know that my crew, the crew that is going to do this, they're used to doing one seven-hour shoot. Oh, right, right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they're used to. I mean, that's the way it's been. Like right. so gotta, they're going to give me a lot of shit. They're going to give me a couple days, I think. Right. But they're just going to have any choice. I mean, you just can't. You, you know, you, I can't go from start to finish in 24 hours and make something great. You know, make something that looks really good. I don't want it to be like a, a hustle. I want it to be you know something really nice. So I'm basically we, I, we've talked about it. And I've come to the conclusion that I'm going to forge the knife out of uh, probably out of uh, uh, regular car, regular you know the coal rolled steel or a hot right. rolled steel, right. and then I'm going to have the knife in diff- various stages of doneness. And what I did tell yeah. them was is that you're just going to have to give me you can't call me up on Sunday night and say we're coming on Monday you got to give me some time to prepare otherwise it's going to be like a total disaster right right so I mean to save time and energy it's best to have four knives various states of of finish which you can then finish all four of them ultimately once the TV show's passed you know probably the best thing you know the the most finished one is the one that's your beauty shot for that day and then the previous ones are all just various stages like okay I've taken this as far as I'm going to take it now I'd go to here, and then you know you go to the grind, and you know, maybe you go to the heart, and you go to the grind, then you go to the stone. Obviously, the handle's a whole other segment on its own. Well, and then I have to also, you know, I don't want people to see how I sharpen my knife. The way I sharpen my knives, which a lot of knife makers do, is they use slack belts. Mm-hmm. You don't want to have that be the way you do it for like civilians because they're just going to be grinding their, you know, they're sharpening yeah, their yeah, knives with their like blue. bench grinders. Yeah, yeah, until it's like you know blue. So I all of a sudden I'm just trying to. Be, you know, I'm very conscious of all the things I need to do. But would you go to thinking, whetstones? Would you go? To I'm going to have to like. Do, I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to finish with whetstones just right. be, which I don't normally do because I don't want there to be scratches on my knives when I send them out. I want it to have a factory right. finish. Right. Right. I, but but for the sake of the video and you know they're going to want it to look like you know they're going to turn the lights down and I'm going to have to have like some sort of like Musashi bandana on my head and I'm going to have water flying everywhere and I'm going to be praying to the gods and stuff and they're going to want that horse shit so we're probably going to do that too. Do you know Brad Leone? Have you ever worked with Brad? You know what? I don't know Brad. I know I, I don't know him personally. I know that he watched the Epicurious video. He talked to a friend and he's like about the guy up in where I he was he mentioned me it's to somebody but I haven't worked with him and I don't I, we have never met yeah he, i think you'd get along i can introduce you he's a good dude yeah no i'd love to I, you know i sent him a dm saying i he i know he did a video with rat with uh bob kramer and i told him i'm, I'm not i'm like 50 minutes on the train if you ever want to come up and forge a knife i i uh i'd be happy to so are you excited for your tv show to come out 
Um, I am. I think it's going to be funny. It's going to be hokey, but the good thing about, you know, it's so deep into the hokiness that it's okay, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not riding that line of like when, when I did like this flea market show with my brother where like we're trying to pretend that was something we're not. This would try to pretend something we're not, but it's like in the Wizard of Oz. So it's like, who gives a fuck? It's like they're just having fun. So I, I am excited. And, you know, sometimes you, you always have this love-hate relationship with the producers. You never know if they're really going to, like, protect you. Uh, but in this case, I think me and Derek and the rest of the guys really feel like these guys are going to protect us the best they can. They really want to show us in the best light. Um so I'm excited to see what they do with it. They see, keep sending us little snippets, and occasionally when we're on a Zoom, they'll show us little bits and pieces of the stuff that they're really excited about. And, you know, they're fighting for survival as far as, like, this, you know, sort of non-sequitur edits that are just, like, completely self-indulgent because they love editing. Yeah. So there's, like, little bits and pieces that don't really have anything to do with the story but are funny, and that's really what they're going for. They're going for the laugh. So I, I feel confident that these guys are going to do something really exciting. I mean, I'm just like 20 pounds overweight, so when I see myself on camera, like, that just ruins everything for me. So I'm, like, <laughs> I'm 54 years old. I'm overweight. My beard is gray. I'm like, who the fuck gives this guy a TV show? That's all I'm thinking every time I watch it. But oh my god, I am on like I'm. I've been like I lost 20 pounds since May, and I'm like now that Condé Nast called me, I'm on like spinach and water. I'm like all. <laughs> I, I, if there was on the Epicurious video somebody wrote I didn't I, 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 uh, I left some facial hair on the video and somebody says tell that dude if he wants to lose his double chin maybe you should consider shaving and I was just like fuck you man I'm, fuck you man I'm gonna fucking do extra push ups before this thing I'm gonna I'm gonna look great well, I can't take Derek, it me and Derek have a plan because we, we jokingly say like because we're both like oh god I feel so fucking fat today you know like we're joking about it all the time like we're gonna get super skinny so when the show comes out in January we're gonna be like yeah we had to bulk up for the show just so we we're more relatable you know, but the two of us will be walking around with our chests out and our abs. I was, I was talking. I love Derek. Derek from all is unbelievable. I talked to him in the middle of your shooting. It was, I guess he was in his apartment. I don't know. He was not on the set, obviously. Yeah, well, and we he were talking about the condo in Wyndham. We were talking about what he was eating. <laughs> and I, saw, I at one point I said, "What are you eating on that show?" Because I'm, I'm afraid that I'm afraid because he was like he, he was going buying all this bullshit, and I was like, "What are you guys eating? What are they feeding you guys?" And I was contemplating. If I wasn't so far away, I was like, "You know what? I'll make you a meal plan. I'm gonna make you some food, Derek." Because I don't <laughs> like what you're eating. He was eating weird shit, and I was just like, "Man, this is you got to have energy. You can't be eating all this like weird nah, shit." Typically in a day, I don't usually eat until four o'clock. Like, I'll wake up in the morning, most likely, most, almost, say, six days out of the week. I, I only eat in the morning, like, on the weekends. But every day during the week, I don't eat anything in the morning. I just have coffee and water. I drink a lot of seltzer. And I'll eat at, like, 4 o'clock. And then I'll eat at, like, 9 o'clock. And then that's it. That's typically. I, I snack a little bit. But now, since the show, I've been super conscious to, uh, you know, try and I'm, I'm riding my bike a lot. I'm really trying to lose a little bit of weight. But during the show, it's like there's sandwiches in the morning and then yeah. there's f- fucking snacks everywhere you look all day long. Like, I don't eat 20 bags of peanuts in a day, but on the TV set, you can't help yourself because you're neurotic, you're fucking lazy, you're tired, you're angry, you're pissed off about some argument you, you're losing with the producer. And, you know, and then you, you eat out of like nervous comfort and, and you just can't stop. Like, I turn on Derek's like, ah, can't do this again. He's like tearing open another bag of peanuts. And so am I, and so is everybody. And, you know, I almost, it's like, I would say don't have this shit on set. Like, like two weeks in, I'm like, don't put soda in the fucking cooler. 
if you, whoever wants soda, buy that person soda and give it to him in his fucking locker room. Yeah. Because I, I won't drink a Coke, but if it's there and it's 90 degrees, I'll drink a Coke. Yeah, of course. So I say don't no sugar drinks in the coolers. Just either iced tea, I mean, sorry, either uh, either uh, seltzer water or water. That's it. I don't want ginger ale. I don't want Pepsi. I don't want orange soda. I don't want any of that shit on the set. And, uh, you know, and everybody kind of agreed with me. And, you know, we mostly drank water and seltzers every day. And... Uh, but like cleft bars and bags of potato chips, you know, that shit is just hard to resist when you're on set. I mean, it, um, it's funny to listen to you and Nico talk uh, about, you know, being on movie sets. It's, you know, I, I've been in a lot of similar situations with TV set, TV shoots and stuff. So it's, it's relatable when I hear you guys chit chat. It's funny. Nico is one of the most interesting people I've ever met. He's one of my closest friends. He can, fluc- he can fluctuate, he can fluctuate weight 20 pounds within two or three weeks. It's crazy. Like oh, I'll wow. see him. I'm like, yo, what's going on? And then the 22 weeks later, he's just like, yeah, I just, I just stopped eating. And then all of a sudden, it's like it's he's like lost all this. He's a, he's an extraordinary, extraordinary guy. It's hard. I mean, I hear you guys are like grumbling about getting old. I'm 54. I'm going to be 55 years old in April. It's like unbelievable to me that I'm that old. And you know, I'm like, here I am. I'm on you. Like everywhere I go, I'm like the oldest person. I, I'm, I, I'm like the oldest person everywhere I go. Like, I go to these hangouts, I'm the oldest person. I go to, like, a YouTube fucking gallery. I'm the oldest. I'll probably be the oldest person at fucking Maker Camp. Speaking of speaking of Maker Camp, <laughs> I, I can no longer talk to Paul Pinto on the phone. I feel like he's too young to talk to on the phone. <laughs> I, I, can talk to, I can talk to Will Stelter for five minutes before I think I, it's so strange to be talking to a 21-year-old on the phone. Is Will I, Stelter I shouldn't be still on the, 17 or has he grown up yet? I think he's like 22. He's 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 out. He's one of my. The interesting thing about me and Will is, there's no reason why we should be friends. Like I represent everything. Like his family <laughs> raised him against, and like we just get along really well. It's just really. It's a very. It's always a very funny and strange relationship, and I appreciate it. But as far as I can't. I mean. Paul Pinto is like a couple years younger than older than my kid, and I'm yeah. just like I can't talk on the phone. I talked to him on the phone a couple times. And I'm like, I can't talk to you on the phone anymore, man. You're just too young. I can't. It's it feels weird talking to a young kid like you on the phone. Paul, Paul is Paul is an old soul though. It's funny. The, the yeah. best part about the Handmade Podcast is listening to Zep go on about all the shit he doesn't need to buy, and and Paul going, really, huh? You need a fifth Bridgeport, huh? You do, huh? And, and then you're in Zep justified. Well, this one was only eighteen hundred dollars, and yeah. the one that was nearby was two thousand. So, for, and then and then Paul's going, yeah, huh? You need another one, huh? You need another one, huh? I, but you don't need a forklift, but you need another one of those. Right? I I listen to that podcast. Where I love those guys. I love I those guys. Great combo. But, and I, I also it. love how out of touch some of them are. That's what I love even more. That's what I love even more. Like I'm I'm sending messages to each one of them, being like, "What the fuck is you are so out of touch? He's out of control. It's it's hilarious." So the financial advice. Oh, I mean, it's like I, I said on Knife Talk. Paul Pinto's the greatest, but usually when people go through puberty, they get like extra body hair. Apparently, he gets like experience after puberty, which is fucking bananas to me. Like he'll say something. He was, I think he was telling, he was talking to Chris Zepp about how to raise your kids or don't. I was just like, get the fuck off. I was like, you can't talk about raising kids. You fucking your child. The fuck? What are you crazy? And it was like, I was like, what am I listening to? This is out, out of outrageous. So back to Maker Camp. We're all yeah. going to be at Maker Camp. Yeah. Are you excited for Maker Camp? I am. I am. You know, it's it's. I'm I'm a little nervous because this. Uh, you know, uh, things are starting to close again. But I don't think I don't think the momentum is going to be be stopped. 
there's so many cool people coming and you know we got i'm gonna talk about bandsaw sculpting i have a, a, a big old american woodworking tool bandsaw i'm gonna put on my flatbed and bring it there and i will be standing on it cutting things all day long making swords and knives and names and logos on my big giant bandsaw i can't wait uh, to to put on a show there with me just free cutting on the bandsaw i know you guys are going to be in the blacksmith tent yep and brett's coming i'm happy brett's coming because brett's an og uh, I think we texted and I was like, he's got it. Like, I think I talked to Austin. He's like, Brett's on the fence. I'm like, he's got to come. It's like an OG. He was there in the beginning. So I think he's coming. Um, you know, uh, Pellegrino, I think, is going to come. You know, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. And Cliff and John, and, you know, that first year was just a real good little ball of energy that, you know, we put it all together. And I like that. You guys, when I when I got to first meet all you guys, was at that Maker uh, Fair where uh, right. my friend Maker and Hammers together. We can talk yeah. about that, but like that's a little restrictive, you know. It's in a way you guys have to be behind the fence, and there's like probably safety officers walking around at Maker Camp. Like no one gives a shit. Like everyone just trusts it's going to be fine. You know, you don't have Austin's family nitpicking anything. Like and then it was like Chris Cash drives right up and parks his car right near the town. I'm like, yeah. oh, I guess I could do that too. Like I'm thinking. You know, oh, the guys running the show own the property. It doesn't matter. You, you, not not to be reckless, but not to be overly safety conscious. It was, right. was was kind of refreshing, and that's the one thing I loved about Maker Camp is that. And like I said, not people not people aren't being intentionally dangerous, but there's not this like safety thing that everybody's overly worried about. You know, shit's gonna happen. You just you know, but nobody did get hurt at that camp, and no one got burned that I know of, and you know everybody had fun, and mm-hmm. there wasn't that over sense of like you know. The absence of the safety police, even though nobody got hurt, was was refreshing. If you understand what I mean, it was. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that everyone kind of knew each other. Like yeah. the people who were, it wasn't like, it, it wasn't like, it was people who knew all the people who were uh, um, exhibiting kind of knew each other anyway through you and through Chris Cash and everybody else. Yeah. And then the people who were there were, uh, there was a ton of people who listened to Knife Talk, which I was shocked about. And it was like, yeah. people were coming in to see all these people and it was just a very, very good vibe. I yeah. really liked it. It was cool. You guys put on a great show. It was fun. You guys kept the energy going the whole time. I think, I think you guys made, did you guys make an anchor that time? What was Cliff Yeah, doing? Cliff and John, and we did a little striking. They made an anchor. We made a, a sledge. You know, the funny thing with us is we actually had a, we had a, a group chat. We a group talk. We all talked and trying to figure, and I guess Austin said, well, when do you need breaks? And we're like, breaks? When we're all together, we just want to keep going. Yeah. You know, it was like, it wasn't really like a, and it's not going to be performative. I know Jesse and I, I'm going to help Jesse make some tongs and I'm going to do friction folders and uh we're gonna do different things and i know the boys want to do something special and yeah. it's just for us honestly i'm fortunate enough to be friends with chris jesse uh, uh to jesse uh cliff and john because you know we get together and we forge i mean that's yeah. all we do and it's yeah. fun so just to do it in front of other people is really fun too yeah we just the chemistry with between john and, and cliff is just i was texting with cliff earlier he was asking some advice about something but i mean Cliff is one of my heroes when it comes to blacksmithing. Like anytime I make something, I think, how can I make it look like Cliff and how uh, Cliff or, or Brent Bailey? Like those are my two heroes when it comes to styling, and it's just unbelievable. And then you know, it, it just watching John and Cliff make stuff and just take on a challenge. And you know, Cliff Cliff is so funny. He he knows so much more than I think he knows. He's so skilled, and it's almost like it's like like thousands of years of experience is like. Is tunneling through him, and he's unaware of it. You know what I mean? 
it come, but it comes from this podcast has become me talking to people and figuring out where it comes from. I don't really talk about tools. Right. I'm far more interested in people because I feel like the listeners can relate to people instead of what you have. And with Cliff, it's interesting because his dad was an architect and his dad was a builder, and mm-hmm. he grew up living in a in a house where his dad was renovating the house. So he was witness to these giant projects that weren't impossible to do, and no one said no one said no. Right. So when you grow up in a, a certain age with that stuff like same with same Steve Schwarzer Steve Schwarzer's dad was making airplanes and that I was, was like normal it's incredible it was it's a but it was normal for him right. so it was at an early age no one said no you can't do that that's impossible he saw his dad make airplanes in the backyard right. they were right. flying off with him you know it's like I think that a lot of makers have a lot of like Cliff is an incredible example of that of terms of you know he just you can't tell him no I don't know if you've ever seen his like little shop in the in one of the in his house I've He's, seen the one that in John's garage at, at the that one but they've all figured out ways in which to make things work work with yeah. very little and it's they, nothing oh, it's no one's telling him no and just to let you know if you ever have the opportunity to make another tv show or to be involved with a tv show that's the show the john and cliff show yeah because if you could do a blacksmithing show with those two yeah dynamite yeah dynamite yeah dynamite i mean they're hilarious together they break each other's balls relentlessly oh, and it's hilarious funny. it's john is one of the funniest he's the fastest one of the funniest people i know another came, big howard stern guy. him and cliff came and like they they taught here at the house and uh somebody i forget i don't remember who said it but someone's like is that guy is that guy mad talking about john i'm, go, I'm just getting to know him i think it's just a sense of humor that's his move that's his move no he he holds people at a certain range it's the great john and cliff are the greatest i love i love them both They're last question yeah give me your top five whack packers live or dead <laughs> live or dead doesn't matter live or dead give me your top five. Oh man i'm gonna uh, judge you i'm judging you by this this yeah. is a this is a Ah, uh, uh, Debbie the Pet Lady. Number one? Well, she's one of the ones. Okay, all right. So this is not in order. No, uh, probably okay. number one would be Bigfoot. Oh, my God. Bigfoot. Really? Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, I, I'm having a hard time remembering the old guys. Uh, who's that crazy guy that used to dress up like a woman? Okay. What? Okay. He was this crazy, like, he, he would... You'd find him online dressed as a woman all the time, but he's like a crazy New Yorker. He would go, okay? I don't know that one. I See, I would go with, I mean, go ahead, keep going. Name some more whack packers. Well, Debbie the Pet Lady was hilarious. I mean, she would go berserk. Like, she'd get offended at the slightest thing, but she was really crazy. Um, t- t- uh, tan Mom is fun. Tan Mom's good. Tan, tan Mom's, Mom's good. good. I mean, I'm thinking of, like, the most recent guys because it's, like, a recent memory, but uh, shit. I'm trying to think of some old guys. I can't. I can't remember some of the old old guys. Oh, well, you know who was funny? Uh, Clef Pallet was funny. Clef Pallet was funny. It That's all. You're you're digging deep. You're oh, digging Clef, deep. Clef Pallet was funny when when uh, there was somebody who would impersonate him and like uh, I forget it was. It, they sang a song about him like he was married and divorced. I don't know. It was, I can't remember the, the setup for it, but Clef Pallet. Um, who else is there? Shit, I'm drawing a blank. You I'm going to tell you it. my top five. Again, you'll, you'll jog some of my memory if you talk. Eric the actor, number one, all day. Oh, Eric, Eric the actor, of course. Eric the actor, number one, all day. 
Hank the Angry Drunken Dwarf, number two. Of no, course. No question. Of course. Then maybe Beetlejuice, but not actually. Actually, I won't go Beetlejuice. I'm actually going to put High Pitch Eric in, on number three. Oh, High Pitch wow. Eric, yeah. number three. So you're jogging my memory. Beetlejuice, no, number four. And then I'm actually going to go for a weird wild card. I'm either going to do King of All Blacks or King of All Blacks or Bobo. As number f- as jog- jockeying for position of number oh five. Oh my god! Yeah, you mentioned all the guys that I like. Yeah, one of the things fine. about one of the things about uh, Howard Stern's Black Pack is they're these weirdos. They're all these incredible weirdos, but they're not good without Howard. Howard oh, draws these things out of them that are incredible. And the funny thing was, I was actually just texting with uh, Steve Schwarzer uh, about. Uh, he was telling me how much I appreciated it, and I said, "This is." He said how he liked the interview. He, he really enjoyed the interview, and he liked what the job that I did and I said I'm just pretending to be Howard Stern Jr. you know and he wrote back in the text well then I guess that makes me Beetlejuice it was the greatest response it was just like fucking Steve Schwarz or Beetlejuice that's awesome so no Beetlejuice is hilarious I mean my girlfriend and I like we my girlfriend Taylor Farr she's a metal worker and a furniture designer she she loves Beetlejuice. Every once in a while, I'll catch her on her phone. I'm like, what do you think? She's watching YouTube videos of Beetlejuice on Howard Stern show. Hilarious. There's Hilarious. one. There's one bit that John, Ariani, and I send each other back. There's this bit where Beetlejuice is talking. Beetlejuice is mad at Gilbert Gottfried. Oh, yeah. Gil- well, good for you. Good for that's you. right. Good for you. He <laughs> hates Gilbert Gottfried. They can't figure out why he hates Gilbert Gottfried. Good for you. And, and Gilbert goes, good for you. Yeah, he said, he says, he, yeah, he, he keeps on saying, he keeps on saying, well, goo, goo for you. And then Gilbert Godfrey says, goo for you. And they keep saying back and forth, goo for you. And it was the great, it was the great. I can listen to I can't wait till he comes back from holiday, to be honest with you. It you was know, a, uh, Gilbert, Gilbert lives, he must live. I don't know exactly where he lives, but he must live in the houses on First Avenue and Second Street that, that also are on, they go from like Second Street, Third Street, Fourth Street. I forget what those houses are called, but Gilbert lives there. I used to, when Gilbert's baby was born, I would see him pushing a baby carriage all the time. Really? Always up and down First Avenue in front of Brickman's Hardware. I would see Gilbert. I must have seen Gilbert over there ten times in the last. But I never bothered him. I would just oh, say, yeah. Well, that's a New Yorker thing. Yeah. The real New Yorkers don't bother famous people. Yeah. That's the move. However, my one embarrassing moment was when I was in high school. I was in a private school on the Upper East Side, and we were walking. Past, we were walking across Fifth uh, Park Avenue, and Rod Stewart was walking with Rachel Hunter, his wife. Oh wow! And my buddy turns and says, "Way to go, Rod!" And Rod turns around and gives us the thumbs up, like, "Yeah, it's right, baby." And we we're just <laughs> we were so, so so pumped for him, but at the same time, we we're just like, "God, that was so not a New York thing to do." You know, I was walking, and this is one of my famous New York stories. I was walking. I don't. I can't remember why. Because when I was in high school, I wasn't in the city a lot. I grew up in Long Island, and I moved to the city. I would hang out in the city when I was a student at SVA, and then I moved to the city full time in '92. But for some reason, I was in high school because I must have been in about tenth or eleventh grade. I was on St. Mark Street for some reason, and I see Joey Ramone. I said, "Joey, oh Ramone. my god, he goes, hey, you me." I go, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm an incredible fan. He goes, "Oh, thanks, man." And I go, and I had on my Volume Four. Black Sabbath jacket that I painted of Ozzy, that silhouette of Ozzy in yellow yeah, yeah. against black with his fingers, you know, peace sign. And I said, uh, I said, would you sign my jacket? He goes, oh, cool, man. Who painted this? I go, I painted this. And he signed Joey Ramone on it. And uh, I left the jacket at my buddy's house a couple months later, and his mother washed it and washed the fucking thing. But the one thing I noticed about Joey Ramone is like when I was up close, his teeth looked like broken glass. They were pointed in every direction. And 
he had on these rose-colored little like John Lennon glasses that looked like he cleaned them with Vaseline. And I was just oh. thinking to myself, can he see through those fucking things? Another group of people who were awesome on the Howard Stern show. Howard had them the on remote, when they were yeah. fighting when they were fighting with each other, and it was great. So, what's next for what's next for Jimmy Jimmy Duresta? What's the next What's the next? You get the show. When do you think the TV show is coming out? The TV show will be out in January. Okay. Um, it's funny. I have this. I have to. I, every once in a while, I say to tell him like I have to start to reinvent myself again because you know my YouTube numbers might be slipping, or I'm starting to feel old, or I see myself on camera and I feel like I'm overweight. You know, it's I, at my age, I really have to like start thinking what is next. And then you know, we talked earlier about like, you know, my life ten years ago in the Lower East Side is different than it is now here in the in the country. You know, and then people think, oh, you know, now you're rich, you got everything you need. I mean, I still work for every dollar I get. What's next? I'm not sure what's next. Just you know, trying to stay healthy and you know, light of recent circumstances, just try to you know, do the right thing by my body. You know, they say uh, you know if you have your health, you have everything. And you know, the older you get, the more that becomes a reality. I know you guys went through some crazy health scares over the COVID times. Yeah, wasn't good. Yeah, and uh, you know, as long as you have your health, you got everything. And you know, I'm trying to remember that more and more. But just trying to enjoy myself, be more experimental in the shop. Definitely do more blacksmithing. And um, so we have this show coming out, and then I'm in the conversations with. Uh, I don't know if I should say it might be too early. I don't want to identify the two guys because I don't want them getting asked. But two guys in the community that you know I'm also partnered with, the three of us might have another potential show, which would be a little bit more like reality, more fun, more like straight up who we are. And we're looking forward to maybe getting something going there. We might shoot a sizzle. We have a network involved. And uh, that would be a lot of fun because these guys are super fun to hang out with. And the only thing that would hold that up is uh, my participation with this other network with their opposing networks but it's a different show like the show like I said like the one I just did now which is kind of like the Wizard of Oz in my backyard is a complete silly fantasy show whereas the one we're potentially going to make is a more of a reality show so I might be able to carve out of my other contract to be able to do that so we're working on that now that would be a lot of fun Jimmy Duresta goo for you Good for you. Good for, for you. I'm very, I'm sorry, I'm very happy for you. I'm Thanks, very man. happy that you're, that I feel like I'm in your life, and and uh, I'm oh, really too. excited. Every time that I see you, I always have a good time, and you're just such a generous, important spirit in this community. Oh, thank and you. I'm not the only person who says that. You've done a lot of really important things for a lot of people, and, oh, thanks, and we man. all appreciate it. And you know, it's funny. You remember these moments in time, and I remember walking up to you guys at that, like you guys were in that corral. I'm sorry, my girl just showed up with the dogs. I'm sorry about that. It's okay. But when you guys were in that corral and you were doing that like blacksmithing thing at the Maker maker Fair. You know, like I said, you remember these moments in time where like, now was when I met Cliff and John and, the, and I'd only heard about you guys really through like a little bit of Brett and a little bit of uh, uh, Zach Herberbaltz because I know Zach took some private lessons with those guys. And when I got to meet you guys in person, I was like, oh man, this is like, I feel like I'm like, oh wow, I'm like hanging out with the cool guys there. I really felt that. And then my idiot friend smacked two hammers together and I was so embarrassed. That was a true story. We got to make sure that we're both in agreement. I've told the story. You've told the story. <laughs> Basically at Maker Fair, I have the picture. The picture's the greatest picture of all time. I showed it to uh, you. were with Chris Epps. It's the first time I met you and Chris. And I was talking to you at the game gates uh, in front of the table where they had the stuff and Cliff and I moved the table back so you couldn't reach over the barrier to get yeah. anything and you were with one of your friends or one guy with you 
I was talking Steve with Cohen. you, and this dude reaches over the reaches over the barricade, <laughs> grabs two hammers. I'm still talking to you, but I'm side eyeing him. At this Mirror point, I'm polish. thinking. At this point, I'm thinking to myself, he's friends with Jimmy. He's gonna know. He's gonna have a degree of whatever. All of a sudden, I'm talking to you, and he bangs these mirror-faced hammers together, and I lost my mind. I lost my mind, and I said, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" And he said, "He said, he said, oh, I'm just testing to see how soft they are." And I said, "I'll tell you how soft they are. You don't have to worry about that." And I was like, "You'd never bang mirror-finished hammers together because they were they were they were." They were Cliff's hammers too, and I just remember the best yeah. part was you just turned very slowly to him and said, "Am I going to have to put you back in the car?" And it was <laughs> it was the greatest it was the fucking greatest line I ever heard. And Chris Epps standing there, I got the picture, but I would never post it because I, I wouldn't want to humiliate this poor guy. Yeah, fuck, he's so far removed from social media. You should post it. I'll po- then I'm going to post the picture. Going. I'm going to post the post post the picture because the greatest part about the picture is, I'm I just lit him up, and yep. you lit him up, yep. and the picture of his face, he looks like he just got his brains bashed in. Oh yeah, because I go Steve, I was like, don't ruin this for me. Is what yeah. I felt like I said yeah. to him. I'm like, these are the cool guys. You're fucking this up for me. Stop it. Like, well. I, Kind of had that moment when nobody was listening. People didn't believe me, and, I, and then I had to. I had to have. We had to make sure that this was a legit story. So, and I didn't make anything up. Well, it was I'll true. Give you. I'll give you the background to that. Steve. Steve is a, a very, very cerebral thinker. Like constantly, like he. He and I could be on the phone for two hours and not right. shut up. Like he is constantly over at. He's an old school inventor. He used to invent pasta machines that make production pasta for like butoni, like. They, like make curl, like he invented the die shapes. He's very, very, very like smart when it comes to like electromechanical shit. And he had just gotten a gig that week to develop a crowbar out of a certain type of steel. You know what a halogen is? You know, the yeah, halogen I have too? one. Yeah, I have he, one taken off of truck. He was. I have my own halogen too. My dad got it from my dad was a New York City fireman for thirty years. He got a job to like redevelop the halogen with like a certain type of steel. So he was just figuring out steel. So when he saw you guys, his fucking eyes lit up. He's like, yeah. hot steel. We're going to have to do this. And he was wanting me to help him develop this crowbar for this, uh, some rescue company, whatever. Like a, like a safety fire equipment company had their new version of a halogen. And Steve was going to help him develop it and how it would be manufactured in closed eye forges. So he was just getting into like researching blacksmithing. And when we saw you guys, he got so excited. And then now we were trying to figure out what the metallurgy was going to be. We were just having conversations over hot dogs that day. And then an hour later, he sees the two hammers there and he starts clicking them. He's like, what the fuck? Yeah, that was, that was a bad move. So that was, that was like we were having this conversation about steel strength and blacksmithing and stuff. And then then he sees you guys and he thinks it's a free-for-all to start banging shit together. Oh, yeah. It got, it got ugly real quick. <laughs> I, I think personally, I'm putting it out there, I think the Halligan tool is going to be the next great American forged project that someone's going to have to figure out how to do. Wow. The Halligan tool is one of the greatest things of all time, one of the greatest tools of all time. I got yeah. one from a firefighter friend of mine that may Named or may after not have. the guy that invented it, Halligan. May, may, but this particular one that I have may or may not have been, you know, firefighters, you know the old expression, if it's free, it's for me and I'll take three. Yeah. I might have, this one might have ended up, somehow it got off his truck and into my shop. So I, that, but that, 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 that exactly. nothing to do with me. Yeah. Jimmy DeResta. 
Dude, we could you. do this all day. You're all, you have an open invite. Anytime you you want to come on, you come on, and we could do this all day. I can't thank you enough for being on the show. It's oh, such thanks, an man. honor I'm for honored. me. Like I said, you're the Howard Stern of, of the maker community, and, and I love you. how you shit on makers. It cracks me up every single. You're like makers will steal your idea. Be careful. <laughs> oh, dude, these fucking thieves are are scurrilous. <laughs> Blacksmiths and knife makers are scurrilous. They have yeah. no shame whatsoever, and then they back it up by being inspired. Get. I, I gotta stop. I we can't keep going on about this but you're always welcome to come <laughs> on here guys go to uh, Maker Camp and come visit us uh, yes. 8th, 8th, 9th, 10th and 11th at uh, Blackthorn Black Camp it's at Maker it's at uh, Catskill Mountain Maker Camp Fair I'll have a, a link in the show notes yep. we'll be there yep. come say hi and uh, next so week cool. next week I want you to watch on Netflix Metal Shop Masters, because oh, my yeah. guest will be my guest will be Leah Arapach, and yes. we will. She, I got the first interview. I got the first crack at her. So we're yes. gonna we're gonna watch that show, and then we're gonna talk about the show. Hopefully, there are probably gonna be spoilers. Who knows? So if you don't if you don't want spoilers on that show, don't t- don't listen to it or wait a week or so. I so, reached out to her because of you. So thank you. And and, and you know Steve Swartz. I haven't talked to him, but I follow him, and and you know several people from the show. I, I started following because of you. So well, thank I you appreciate. For I appreciate that. And guys, go follow. You already followed Jimmy. And we'll see you next week with uh, Lee Arapach. Thanks, Jimmy. Thank you, brother. The Full Blast Podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all-natural, food-safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, If you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.